spins a web any size. Catches seeds just like flies. Look out! Here comes the Spider-Man. Welcome to episode 22 of Amazing Spider-Man Classics in association with SpiderManCrawlspace.com. Amazing Spider-Man Classics is brought to you by our sponsor, Roll2Play, an online vendor of games and gaming accessories. A game currently being featured is called Munchkin. It's an award-winning card game designed by Steve Jackson and illustrated by John Kovalik, which captures the essence of the dungeon experience. Go down in the dungeon, kill everything you meet, backstab your friends, and steal their stuff. Grab the treasure and run. That's at www.roll2play.com, spelled with the number 2, or on Facebook if you search Roll2Play, all one word, again, spelled with the number 2. I am here in the studio tonight with, uh, as usual, Donovan Morgan Grant. Say hello, Don. Hiya, hiya. Sadly, Josh Bertoni is not going to be with us on this episode. He, uh was not feeling well. He did not want us to reschedule, but to continue on without him. So we are doing so, but we miss him and hope for his soon recovery. So he can be back on the show soon, but we are joined today by a special guest who is well known in the comic book podcasting world. He has been either the brains or the beauty. I'm not sure which behind two true freaks, which is an entire family of podcasts for over two years. Now nerds and nerdettes. I give you Scott H Gardner. Oh, not that guy again. (laughs) (laughs) He's everywhere. How's it going? Good to have you on the show tonight, Scott. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. And I just have one thing to say to you guys. Great shot, kid. That was one in a pants. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. I awesome. love that episode. Well, let's let's take a few minutes before we get start talking about Spider-Man, Scott. Let's talk about what this Two True Freaks thing is that you do. What are y'all doing over there? Oh, my goodness. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, Two True Freaks proper is a show. It's a weekly show. comes out every single Monday, and we do what we call monthly Monday episodes. So for the first Monday of the month, we... Our Star Trek, or excuse me, Star Wars focus. We have Star Wars Monthly Monday, in which we uh, generally cover, you know, everything going on in the world of Star Wars. But mostly, we are focused on right now. We're covering the um, classic Marvel comics Star Wars series. We're uh, now in the fifties, I think. Yeah, we just did number fifty-five. So yeah, we're coming up on uh, fifty-six and beyond. Good stuff, and uh, we really love Star Wars, and we've been trying to get a little bit more caught up with Clone Wars as well, but we also cover Clone Wars. Um, Whenever I get around to it, I do book reviews because I'm trying to read my way through the extended universe, that kind of thing. Uh, Second Monday of the month, we do Star Trek, where we cover a random episode, completely picked at random episode of the original show. We're going through the DC Comics Star Trek series, the original one. I have to say that I like the the randomness of the selection there. I think it adds more energy than just going one after the other after the other. I think that's a good choice. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. You know, I've I've often wondered what people think of that because ever since we picked up the second part of that show with uh, with doing next gen, and of course we're doing next gen in order. It kind of made me start to regret that we weren't doing the original series in order. So I wondered how listeners felt about that. But I kind of like the randomness of it myself because it it makes you really work your brain to think, you know, what happened in what order and that sort of thing. And it gives you a feel for the series as a whole rather than as it progressed and as it built, if, if that makes any kind of sense at all. Um, let's see. Third Monday of the month is uh, Comics Monthly Monday, which... Uh, 
I guess you guys are going to get the inside scoop on this, but we're kind of looking at retooling uh, Comics Monthly Monday just a little bit, so uh, announcements will be forthcoming on that. Mm. And then the fourth and even sometimes fifth weeks, uh, Mondays of the month, is kind of our wild card show where anything and everything can happen. There can be any kind of crazy topic you can think of from you know, movie reviews to movie commentaries to just general BS or whatever. You never know what you're going to get with those. We've had some really fun episodes doing that stuff. And somewhere on the horizon, I'm not sure when it's going to happen or where it's going to happen, but eventually we'll get to it. Um, we want to tackle the uh, Back to the Future franchise at some point. So I'm hoping oh, that would that be cool. Four years end. I mean, to um, sit down with the, with a the daughter and watch those because... I mean, she's seen them, but you know, when you're a kid, if it wasn't like in the last six months, you have a hard time remembering. So right. mm-hmm. um, I think she was probably three or four years old when we last watched the whole trilogy, and now she's eight, and so we need to we need to watch them again. I think they're good family movies, too. You know, I mean, there's a little bit of language in there, especially in the second one, but overall, I think they're good movies that you can sit down with and, and thrill to with your kids, you know, because they've got good stories. Um, even a good moral to a certain extent, and uh, and just a lot of comedy and a lot of action. So I, I really, I've, I've been a fan of those for a long, long time. And also under the Two True Freaks banner, we have uh, you know some other shows that we do. We have Back to the Bins, which is a, a random, randomly picked comic book review show. We have uh, Tales of the JSA, which uh, I do with uh, your former guest on this show, uh, Michael Bailey. We do that. Just talking about, uh, at the moment, we're covering uh, All-Star Squadron. And then uh, not long ago, I started up my own solo show on the Two True Freaks feed, which is Death and the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke, the Jonah Hex podcast. And I'm having an absolute ball doing that show. It's a lot of work, but I enjoy it a lot. I'm behind on that show, but I'm really enjoying it. I knew Jack about Jonah Hex before you started that up, so I've been kind of letting you be my be my gateway to his his world and it's been a lot of fun yeah, i appreciate that i you know it's funny i i hear more of that than i hear from like fans of jonah hex because i really thought you know i thought the listenership that i would get would be diehard hex fans and it's it seems at least from the feedback i'm getting that it's anything but it, it's people with basically the same story don't know anything about jonah don't even really like him but you do you know the, the way you do it you know keeps me interested so i'm learning about the character and that you know that's very rewarding to me because that was the whole intent was i wanted to share you know my love and enthusiasm for that character with everybody else and all of those shows can be found at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com pick and choose or listen to them all it's a, it's a lot of really good stuff over there <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and how did you get into comics? I know you're older than I am. Oh, you just... had to point that out, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Not by a hell of a lot, but you 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 started earlier than I did. Oh God, how did I get into comics? Um, you know, it's funny. I was on. Uh, I want to say it was views views from the long box. Gosh, I can't remember. I was on something not long ago where somebody asked me that question. And I wasn't prepared for it at all because, I, you know, I didn't really have a pat answer. I don't remember a time when comics weren't in my life. You know what I mean? I, I think, you know, and this could be one of those apocryphal like Stan Lee stories, but I think it all started when I was a, an asthmatic when I was a kid. And, you know, back in the in the 60s and early 70s, they didn't have like nebulizers and all this, you know, do it, do it yourself, do it at home stuff that they have for kids that suffer from asthma today. 
I mean, when a kid suffered really bad from it, like I did when I was a kid, you were put in an oxygen tent in the hospital. And so, you know, I was one of those, you know, frail little nerdy kids that couldn't go out and run and play, you know, football and baseball like the other kids. I spent a lot of time in the hospital. So I can remember my dad bringing me like model kits and stacks of comic books, you know, to keep me entertained while I was in the hospital. I think that was really my introduction to comics. You know, I was always primarily a, a DC boy, really into Superman and stuff like that. And then we moved um, to New York when I was six or seven. And my grandma Gardner, you know, they had umpteen kids. You know, they were like those, oh, who were those freaks on TV that were the 19 kids? <laughs> that was like my grandparents had almost that many <laughs> kids. And, you know, all my uncles read Marvel comics. And that was really, you know, I had seen Spider-Man like on the electric company. So I knew who he was from that, but I'd never really read any of his stuff. But um, there were all these stacks of marvels around at my grandmother's house. And I can remember the, the one that sticks in my mind the most and the one I would always pick up and flip through that was always at grandma's house was Marvel team up number 39. It was Spider-Man and the Human Torch. And it's this great cover where this this guy, he's wearing a green like trench coat in a fedora and he's got a purple mask. And so there's a visual for you. He's aiming a, a, a sniper rifle and Spider-Man is in the sights of the, of the rifle. And then the human torch is coming up behind the guy and he's saying something like, there's no way I can stop this guy in time or something like that. And that has just always stuck with me that as probably the earliest spider Spider-Man comic I can really remember reading, but there was some other good ones. Um, I remember there was, I don't know if it was an actual issue of Amazing or if it was a Marvel Tales reprint, but there was the one where the Prowler's kicking Spider-Man down an elevator shaft. Right. Um, there was yeah. another one where the, the Scorpion was busting open a water tower and like washing Spider-Man away. That's a great cover. The Hammerhead versus Doc Ock trilogy. Loved that story as a kid. And then, of course, the infamous Spider-Buggy. You know, spider <laughs> you know that, that was sitting around at my grandma's. So, you know... That was one of my first exposures to Spider-Man, and he had a Spider-Mobile. So it was, you know, it was great disappointment later on when I realized that, you know, he didn't actually have like a Spider-Mobile like Batman had a Batmobile all the time. It was actually just this one-off thing. But because that was one of the very first comics of his I was exposed to, I expected him to have it all the time, you know. And a Spider-Cave too, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it was a long time before I really got, like, into the character. And to my recollection, and I couldn't tell you why other than it just had a great cover on it. I remember picking up uh, Spectacular, number 59, and it had all these villains um, on it. And they were saying something like, you know, we're going to kill you, Spider-Man, or something like that. Yes. And it was just this really cool dynamic cover that I really liked. I picked that one up and, and I was hooked and I, I just got into Spider-Man at that point. And I think that's a Roger Stern issue. If he, did, he did spectacular for a while before he jumped on Amazing. So I, I, I yeah. think you're right. And, uh, you know, he's my, my personal favorite, probably my personal favorite comic book writer outright, but definitely my favorite um, Spider-Man writer. I, I just... You know, even Stan, as much as I, I, I absolutely love and, and practically worship Stan Lee, I think Roger had a, at least as much understanding of that character, if not more, than Stan himself. And I, I think he did just a phenomenal job with the character. I, I enjoyed everything that he did with that. So 
that's kind of my comic slash Spider-Man origin all in a nutshell, <laughs> I guess. Well, in this episode of Amazing Spider-Man Classics, we are going to be living up to our name like possibly never before as we launch into what many would consider to be Steve Ditko's finest hour in his tenure on Amazing Spider-Man. Issues 31 and 32 of the series make up the first two parts of what has come to be known as the Master Planner Trilogy, and it really is classic Spider-Man gold. Now, mm-hmm. Scott, you are one of our earliest supporters here at the show, and I, 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 I'm very, very grateful. And when you found out we were going to be having guests on, you asked me to be on the episode when we were going to do issue 31. This was like back in March or April, so it's been a long wait, but tell us why you would ask yeah, me for well, this particular it was a long time. One. Well, um, <laughs> I can't remember when it happened, but it was within this past year. There's this little uh, mom-and-pop print studio in the metropolis, sprawling metropolis of Villarica, Georgia. And anybody familiar with that knows that it's anything but a sprawling metropolis. It's this little one-horse town. It's you know You blink and you'll miss driving through it. But there's this little mom-and-pop place there, and I remember that... Uh, whenever I had stopped there before that they had a a lot of used books and sometimes they would have like star Wars and star Trek books. And I like to pick those kind of things up on the cheap. So I stopped in there one day and as I was walking in the door, I noticed they had this tiny little handwritten taped sign on the door that said, we now have comics. So I thought, "Mm, comics. (laughs) So I went in and I dug around in all these uh, bins that they had and it was just crap, you know, just absolute junk. So I was really disappointed. And as I was leaving, I noticed that they had one of those old fashioned like jewelry counter type of things. And inside the display cases were all these older comics. And one of them that they had was uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 31. And I, I have to profess my ignorance beyond the fact that I knew that it was a um, Lee Ditko issue. I knew nothing about it. I didn't understand its historical significance. I wasn't aware of the first appearances that are in the story and all that. I just knew that those two guys were on the issue. So for me, that was good enough. You know, that was the the, the seal of approval right there. So uh, I picked it up for a mere 10 bucks. It's uh, it's in really solid shape. I don't know that I've ever actually graded it, but just off the top of my head, I would say it's probably fine or near fine it's it's in really solid shape for the age that it is and everything and and for being like i say just you know on display with a bunch of other random comics in in some display case and some you know little second hand place but it is solid there's there's nothing wrong with the issue and i was just thrilled to get it and i took it home and read it and uh then i did a little bit of research on it and i think it was our buddy uh chris johnson uh, who pointed out to me, hey, you know, you know about the significance of that issue, right? And I was like, no. And then he filled me in on it. I won't spoil ahead on it. Uh, we'll get to it, I'm sure, in the course of covering the issue. But uh, turns out that uh, some very important people in the life of uh, Spider-Man were introduced for the first time in that issue. So pretty cool. And I would, uh, I would say that, uh, you know, if you ever find yourself... At that particular exit, it's the uh, Carrollton Villarica exit in off of uh, I-20 in Georgia. If you ever find yourself there, do two things. First, dope slap yourself and say, why in the hell am I in Villarica, Georgia? <laughs> and secondly, stop by. Uh, I have no idea what the name of the place is, but it's going to be easy to find because I, you know the town is the size of you know the, the head of a pin. 
uh, find this little mom and pop gift shop or uh, print shop rather, because they had a lot of other really nice books that I simply just couldn't afford. But I, I know they had some early like what was the Thor title Journey into Mystery? Yeah. And it's... a Metamorpho and all these other great comics. I, I wish I'd had the, the time and money to pick them up before I moved away. But uh, maybe our buddy Mike Bailey will go over and scoop those up sometime. But uh some really nice stuff. So yeah, that's how I, I chanced across this particular issue. And uh, I guess that's what qualifies me to be in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I can be qualified to be on here. <laughs> Turns out there's this whole certification process we use for other people. But, you know, you had ASM 31, so you got right in. <laughs> I jumped to the head of the line. <laughs> so diving into the books, first up today is, as we were just discussing, Amazing Spider-Man number 31, which was released on September 9th, 1965, with the cover date of December. And leading us through this issue, held so tenderly in his delicate hands, is Scott Gardner. All right. Thanks, fellas. Okay, so the first book we're looking at is The Amazing Spider-Man number 31. Original cover price on this one? A mere 12 cents. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. I hurt. (laughs) Now, I don't know if you guys typically uh, point this out. I I always make a note um, to point these kind of weird, you know, what what I perceive as weird just because of the era of comics that that I and, and we have grown up in. But the Indicia for this particular issue is on the inside front cover, not on the actual book itself. Which uh, I point that out because it really is frustrating to owners of coverless copies of comics from this era. I know because for many, many years I owned and still own coverless copies of issues 39 and 40. You know, a couple Uh, of the most historically significant copies of Amazing Spider-Man. Yet mm -hmm. I didn't realize that's the issues that I had until many years later because the Indicia was on the cover, and the covers are gone. So I'm just flipping back through the co- issues we've done so far, and that seems to be the standard ah. at this point. I, th- I, don't, I don't think that they've put it on the uh, first page of the comic yet since they started, so I don't, I don't know when that starts happening. It, it, it really is frustrating because I'm sure that I probably had a lot of other comics over the years that, uh, that had a certain value to them or what and didn't realize it because you know there was no indicia on the actual coverless copy that i had that's uh, it's aggravating but i was actually delighted to find out that those issues were 39 and 40 when i finally did track that information down anyway the credits on this issue are masterful script by stan lee magnificent artwork by steve ditko who also supplied the uh, cover on this one and it's kind of a strange cover it's uh the artwork doesn't take up very much of it it's uh a very odd-looking spider shape with a Spider-Man head in the middle of it. And then in between each of the legs is little scenes, little like vignettes from things that will happen in the story, like a bad guy using a gas gun, Spidey leaping at a helicopter, Spidey swimming underwater, and, and various scenes like that. And it has the title of the story right on the cover. It says, If This Be My Destiny. And it says, Dedicated to You. The Great New Marvel Breed of Reader. It's a really nice cover. And then the background is all red on it. It's it's a nice cover. It's just kind not of the odd. usual style. Yeah, not at yeah. all. Not at all. And it's not one that I see referenced very often either. The rest of the credits are mellif- mellifluous. Well, that's a hard word to say. Mellifluous, which means, by the way, smooth, sweet, and or pleasant. 
<laughs> lettering by Sam Rosen. I had to look that word up. I thought that's what it meant, but I just wanted to be safe. So like I said, story is entitled If This Be My Destiny, and I got to thinking I'm pretty sure that that uh, title will be recycled many, many, many times in many other comics titles for years to come after this. I'm, I'm positive I've heard that particular uh, title before. And it says on the splash page, which is not a story page, it is really just a, uh, a title splash of uh, Spider-Man battling some bad guys from kind of from a scene that will happen later on in the book. A new era in the life of Spider-Man is about to begin, and you shall live it with him. Really like that. It's a very nice uh, title splash. So our story begins with several uh, purple-suited bad guys congratulating themselves on their well-timed and expertly performed heist of radioactive atomic devices from a production plant in the middle of the night. Everything is proceeding swimmingly and ahead of schedule. Even when they are discovered by a security guard, uh, the group isn't hampered. They simply dispatch him with their sleep gas guns. What (laughs) could go wrong? Well, Spider-Man could just happen to swing by, and this being his book, after all, that's exactly what happens. Spider-Man bursts into their uh, fleeing helicopter. With a thum. Yeah, I know. I love that. And he proceeds to beat the tar out of the uh, criminal crew, and they do attempt to gas him, but then he just holds his breath. And I love this thing where he says, you know, I can hold my breath so much longer than a regular person, and... uh, I guess you guys would be the guys to ask on this. Is this another instance of powers on the fly, or has he demonstrated this power before? I think he's been underground, underwater for a while. I think like hiding from the lizard or hiding from. Oh, I who think was it? He did that before, but um, it's it's just like it's just like he he knew he could do it all along. It's sort of like you get the idea that he he tried holding his breath as long as he could in his room one day. I don't know. <laughs> Well, as long as he doesn't start shooting rainbows out of his fingers, I'm, I'm okay. With it, so. <laughs> now, now, have you? I know we haven't uh, published the episode for it yet, but have you read issue thirty, the one right before this? No, I, I probably should have it because I I just listened to last episode um, today while I was running errands and such, and I got to thinking. Now there's a gap between that episode and the one that we're recording tonight. So if I'd had time, I, I should have. I should have read the books in the in the interim, and I just didn't get time to. No worries. The only thing I was going to say is that um, these purple guys were in last issue. Oh, okay. But the main bad guy was a cat burglar. And they kept, the purple guys kept on saying throughout the issue that they worked for the cat. But we never actually saw them report into the cat. And, now, is that uh, the same cat that's uh, Felicia Hardy's father? No, that was the one thing I had to look up because I wasn't sure about that either. Uh, it is actually a totally different guy who does come back way down the road as um, not the first Prowler, but one of the Prowlers oh, okay. that um, comes along down the road. The, but, uh, uh, alien costume saga, right? I think he, he comes back before then, although he might be the Prowler in that story. He comes mm-hmm. back before then. Okay. Uh, but anyway, so you, you had these guys claiming they worked for the cat in the last issue. The cat's been taken care of, but now they're still around. With absolutely no mention of the cat whatsoever, now they're working for the master planner. So it's just a little a weird uh, continuity gotcha. thing. That, that, like Stanley and Steve Ditko weren't talking on the same page at this point, or something like that. Imagine that. <laughs> hmm. So meanwhile, in the uh, rear of the helicopter, other members of the gang uh, seal the stolen equipment in a waterproof shell, and then they drop it into the water far below, where divers swim out from a hidden underwater base and retrieve it. 
Back on board the copter, Spider-Man is finally starting to feel the effects of the gas and decides to wrap up this fight quick. He accomplishes this by swinging the broken side door into the helicopter's whirling rotor blades with his web line. Now, I'm pretty sure that this would not work in real life. I'm thinking it would be, you know, likely to suck the web line and Spider-Man into the blades and make like spider pate out of him. But, you know, (laughs) I I can go along with a gag, I guess. But the airship plummets into the drink, nearly taking Spider-Man with it, but he manages to swing clear. He then attempts to do the humanitarian thing and rescue the bad men before they drown. But to his dismay, he finds that they're all gone. He's unaware that a special rescue crew from the underwater base uh, have taken them all away to safety. So Spider-Man is vexed, and in the secret lair, someone is ranting and raving about how that confounded Spider-Man is following up his, or potentially her, uh, plans once again. We don't Mm. actually see this figure. So the next morning at the Parker household, Peter is off to his college registration, and his doting aunt sees him off thinking to herself that he's in such a good mood that she simply can't spoil it for him by revealing that she's on the verge of her 78th life-threatening illness. (laughs) So so Peter goes through the trials and tribulations of college registration and returns home that night to tell May all about it when she suddenly feels a great disturbance in the force and collapses. Because doesn't it look like that? When I see that page, it just reminds me of uh, of the Ben Kenobi page in uh, Marvel Star Wars adaptation where he grasps his, grasps his head and like doubles over. That's or, what it reminded um, me of anyway. <laughs> have y'all done the episode yet on um, Star Trek Monthly Mondays where Spock feels the 400 Vulcans on the ship get wiped out at one go? Oh, I'm not sure. What episode is that? I is think that the, the one with the, the big am- amoeba? Yeah, the immunity syndrome. <laughs> yeah, no, we haven't yet, but I okay. love that episode. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> it's like, oh... So a half an hour later, Dr. Bromwell uh, pronounces her, quote unquote, very weak. But he says, (laughs) I'm not sure what's wrong with her. And I'm thinking, um, you know, I'm no doctor here, but maybe it's the fact that she's like 108 years old. It might have something to do with it. But, you know, I'm just saying. So anyway, you know, this begins a long and milked for every iota of empathy that it's worth subplot of Aunt May dying in the hospital and <laughs> Peter being completely sidetracked and preoccupied by his concern for his beloved aunt. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not bad. It's it's even kind of sweet, but it's also very long and drawn out. And, you know, let's face it. We know that the old bat isn't going to die. Because God just won't answer that particular prayer of mine for some reason. Or he, he pretends to, and then he steals it back. Yeah, and then he takes it back. <laughs> <laughs> You're so right. Oh, you are so right. God taketh away, but John Byrne giveth back. Yeah, that's... that's... <laughs> Now, for, for our buddy Josh, who couldn't be here, see, Josh, I slammed John Byrne on my own. <laughs> <laughs> so when I listen back to this episode, I'm going to have to tell myself to fast forward like 15 seconds. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyhow, May encourages Peter not to miss his first day of college tomorrow. Peter obeys and arrives at school completely exhausted because he never slept a wink the night before. He's that worried about Aunt May. 
You I have never been that worried about something. I always sleep at some point, but, you know, I guess he's a better man than I am, I guess. <laughs> well, he's a superhero. <laughs> I mean, I, I have. I, I've, you know, I've been that upset to where, you know, I, I literally couldn't sleep or I was, you know, my nerves were that frayed or something like that. But the other thing that we see go on with him, you know, where, you know, he literally doesn't hear people speak to him and stuff. That I thought was a bit of a stretch, but. Yeah. That. Um, but you know, he can't seem to focus or, or clear his thoughts all day long and it causes him to, to miss out on all this social interaction with, uh, with flash and these new friends of his Harry Osborne and Gwen Stacy. It's two so, worst enemies. Yeah. So, yeah. And this issue, they sure come off that way. So, uh, you know, when Peter seemingly blows off his friends and his classmates repeatedly because of this, you know, state of mind, this funk that he's in over Aunt May, he quickly gains the rep of being like a, a total snob. And I think they say in one of the future issues, uh, 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 he's high hatting them. I'd never heard that expression before. That yeah. was a I kind of get the gist of what they mean by that. And, you know, so the other students, they take a dislike to him. Because they perceive that he's blowing them off like he's too good for them, but it's just because he's all preoccupied. Yeah, so they even like this, this huge, massive conspiracy. Like, like page nine in the middle there, he's walking by some completely different people who are like trying to say hi to him, and and they're surprised that he you know didn't respond. And then Harry Osborn just like shows up. Hey, that wasn't <laughs> as bad as the one he gave to Flash Thompson. Just <laughs> <laughs> like showing up, spreading bad words about Peter Parker. <laughs> Stupid goblin. Anyways. <laughs> And his bow tie. <laughs> and his bow tie. So, you know, these these supposed friends, of, well, I guess they're not really his friends. They're just, you know, classmates or what. But they even go so far as, like, pull pranks on him and stuff, and they get him in trouble in chem lab with uh, Professor Warren, his first appearance in this one. But for some reason, Gwen Stacy, you know, she's not down on Pete like everybody else is in this. She's got the hots for him. And even despite his distracted dismissals of her, She's still, you know, she wants her a piece of uh, Peter Parker. So <laughs> Peter's total focus is Aunt May, Aunt May, Aunt May, to the exclusion of all else, and his peers take it completely the wrong way. So, And Peter doesn't help his rep by constantly racing to Aunt May's side throughout the issue any and every time he's got a spare moment. That was, you know, I really like this issue, but that was my one complaint with it, is that there, there's, I don't know how many scenes in this, that kind of feel like it's just repeating itself over and over. You know, Peter goes to school, worries about Aunt May, rushes to Aunt May's side as soon as school is over. You know, I kind of felt repeat. that way too. There was a, it was a lot of a lot of yo-yoing. Yeah, definitely. So you know, the doctors try to reassure Peter while simultaneously telling him that they don't know what's causing her condition and basically trying to brace him for the worst. They just know that it doesn't look good for Aunt May. And of course, you know, money. You know, because this is a Spider-Man comic. Money quickly becomes an issue for, you know, the eternally strapped for cash Peter Parker. So it's out on patrol for Spider-Man, hoping to take some good crime picks for the Daily Bugle and, you know, make himself some money. But nothing materializes and Peter is once again forced to attend school completely exhausted and distracted the next day. So at the aforementioned Daily Bugle, J. Jonah Jameson is fussing that he has no news to put in his newspaper and he sends his man Foswell out to get the story. Foswell, uh, once again disguised as the Patch, 
gets wind of a potential heist of nuclear devices down at the docks and decides to go investigate. Back at ESU, Peter blows off Gwen Stacy for like the umpteenth time this issue, and she decides that she's going to make him regret it. I really Arr. like that. <laughs> so at the hospital, yep, Aunt May's still dying, all right. So it's back out on patrol <laughs> for Spider-Man. He ends up being flagged down by Foswell, who hasn't enough info to go and hand his heist story over to the cops and have them check it out. So he tells Spider-Man all about it instead. Spidey decides it's worth checking out, and so he swings off to the docks. There he witnesses the purple-suited bad guys again trying to make off with all these nuclear gizmos, and he lays right into them. And they try the gas trick again, but Spider-Man was prepared for that this time. So he clobbers all the crooks, he prevents the robbery, but the bad guys do manage to give him the slip because they just all go underwater with their breathing apparatus things where Spider-Man can't follow them. So the battle's concluded, but then Spider-Man realizes that everything happens so fast that he never took any pictures. (laughs) So it's revealed to us, the readers that he'd whipped up a little Batman-style breathing apparatus to protect himself from the gas before he met up with these guys again. You know, that's how you know he was able to, to not be affected. And then it's off to hunt for more news photos. So in the underground lair, the mysterious voice, that of the master planner, curses Spider-Man's meddling and promises that any further interference from the webbed one will spell his doom. And in the lab where Aunt May's tests are being studied, the doctors come to the inescapable conclusion that Aunt May can't possibly, can't possibly last much longer. Definitely not not another 45 years anyway. (laughs) And that's number 31. Awesome. (laughs) So Master Planner is teased throughout. No idea who he is or she, like you said. Down in this underwater basement. Not basement, underwater base. Mm-hmm. New characters. Gwen Stacy. Yay! Who uh, has personality at this point in her history. <laughs> Always a good Don't thing. <laughs> now let me ask you something. Does she strike you as being drawn and possibly even written to be much older? Because she seems to me like almost like a like a cougar. You know what I mean? Like, she's really? an older woman on the prowl for younger guys. I kind of got that she was, like, actually, uh, I thought that she was kind of, I got the, the vibe that not she was really any younger than she's supposed to be, but that she's a kind of young girl. Maybe it's because, like, the hairstyle she has and the fact that she's always jonesing for Peter's bones. But I, I don't know. I, I, didn't, I didn't get that vibe. I kind of actually did wonder if they were trying to make off, like, Gwen and Harry were both older than Peter. Right. Uh, you know, by a couple of years. And there's even a comment by, um, Harry, at the bottom of his first page, page eight, uh, he looks like any other frosh to me. And if he were a freshman, why would he be making fun of Peter as a freshman? Well, I, I, guess, I guess he had another freshman saying he looks like any other freshman to me, personally. Okay. Okay, I guess I, that would might work. It just struck me as odd. But yeah, her whole, you know, I've never had a man not notice me. I've never had a man not, you know, fall head over heels for me, so I better go stir up some trouble with this one to make him like me. Yeah. Very, very sexist. <laughs> that was real, um, yeah, real progressive woman <laughs> there. <laughs> you know okay. what gets me? You guys talked about how there's a lot of reputation with Peter running around and, like, uh, a lot of that going on. I don't like how, 
I mean, I, I know that's part of the story, but I don't like how these, these kids automatically think that, oh, he, he, he's too busy to talk. That must mean he's a suck of loser. I mean, do they do they say that to everybody that they run into? Like, you, you can talk to anybody. Says, oh, I'd love to talk, but I'm, I'm busy right now. I have to go. See ya. And they're, they're like, well, obviously that guy is a jerk. We don't want to be around him. Like, they, like they're so pigeonholed in their opinions that it's almost like it's, it's almost like like a, a force of action. And I and I always thought that like they they're either, they're either really really stupid or they're just not really considering you know that maybe he actually has you know some business with the paper or something. I don't know. I'm in college right now, and and so are you, Don. Although we're mm-hmm. several years apart. I'm I just have to wonder if like campus society has changed a whole lot because one of the big things they make one of the big deals they make about Peter is that he won the scholarship, and yeah. so that must be going to his head, and that's why he's you know not talking to anybody. But I couldn't tell you who at my university has won a scholarship if you paid me. I have no clue, and you know my wife got full tuition to her undergraduate and graduate programs, but I don't think anybody else knew that on campus. So. How they know that he won the scholarship, why that's a big deal, I don't know. And also, I couldn't give a rat's ass who is tired at school and too tired to talk and who isn't. You know? It's just, (laughs) I don't care. Like, if it's somebody that I sit next to who's being quieter than usual, I might be a little concerned. But if I sit next to him on the first day and he just doesn't want to talk, that's his deal. You know, whatever. I, I, I have my own life. So I don't know. College kids are acting like like first graders. They are. It's really really weird. Everyone's a prima donna, and they all got to pick on Peter. <laughs> I mean, I've been in situations where I I personally have like you know, hey, what's up? I I really have to run, or vice versa. You know, somebody says that they gotta go someplace. I don't you know I don't think twice about it. I, I don't I don't say, can you believe that a hole or anything like that. Right. <laughs> I've never been that angry. No, there was this uh, friend in my Spanish class that tried to talk to me several times. And every time I was on my way to class, I was on the phone or something. And after a few days, I was like, found her at the end of class. I was like, I have to apologize. You know, if, if I've always been on the run every time you try to talk to me, I didn't mean to blow you off because I don't want to give that impression. But of the three semesters I've been at school, five if you count summers, that's the only time where I felt like, you know, I was actually blowing somebody off. And I've never felt like somebody else was blowing me off. Well, not since high school, anyway. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, oh, oh maybe maybe Stan and Steve were just trying to figure out a way to put Peter back in a similar situation in college to what he had in high school. I mean, he's growing older and he's going to a new phase in life, but he's always been the the brunt of insults and everything. So, how are we going to make that happen again here in college? And so, this is just what they yeah. came up with. I mean, it's it's oh, like it's like he, it's a new. Uh, it's a completely new setting, so the kids can't just think, "Oh, well, he's you know he's a dork because you know he's in college, and if he's a science major, then he's probably going to go to big things." So they can't; they have to respect him. But socially, it's it's like the Flash Thompson thing, you know. Oh, they, they, he thinks he's you know a, a snob. So I think that's where that that um that's that's kind of what he was going for, and not and not which was kind of was kind of shadowing the whole everybody against Peter. And we also have the first appearance of Harry Osborne. Uh, son of Norman Osborne, who has not been named yet, but we've seen him around. And um, I don't know how much we really need to go into the discussion on it, but just in case we have a new listener to this episode, we're going with the notion put forth by Steve Ditko a couple years ago in his essay that he 
even though they may not have known exactly what they were going to do with the character, he knew whenever he was putting in Norman Osborn's face in Jonah Jameson's club that that was the Green Goblin. And that whenever he introduced Harry in this issue, that he gave him a similar hairstyle and similar facial uh, features because he wanted Peter Parker to be going to college with the Green Goblin's son, even though it would end up being several months before that actually was revealed. Uh, that was something that was deliberate. So with, with, with that in mind, thoughts on Harry on this first appearance? He's not exactly a nice guy, is he? No, I, I like the way he's drawn because he's drawn to look unpleasant. You know, he's got kind of the, the, the rat kind of villain face, you know, with the, with the high stuck up, almost like a pig nose mm-hmm. and the, the heavy downward brow, you know, eyebrows and all that. And talking out of the just, side of his mouth. Yeah. And so he looks like the, the stereotypical, like Tool. snooty rich kid at school or something, you know, who looks down on everybody else kind of thing. And I think he works really well. In you know he's almost like the um, oh I thought I had an analogy there for a second and then I, it just went right out of my head, but you know I've I've seen characters like this before who uh, oh who is the guy in Firestorm that was like Cliff Carmichael you know who is who is just like the foil of the hero you know who just constantly it's like he just lived to give the guy grief you know right. what I mean and, and just like always trying to prove his his superiority to him or something like that that's what uh, Harry seems like in it, because it's Harry that pulls the dirty trick on Peter in this and gets Peter in trouble in in chem lab. And so I wonder if they were setting him up to to maybe be that that kind of a person, you know, that he was going to make it his mission at school to to make Peter's life hell or something like that. Just the way he's drawn in these different panels between page nine and ten just give me that impression because he's constantly has that really evil look on his face and he's kind of <laughs> sneering and looking down his nose at Peter Parker and always giving him sidelong glances and stuff. Makes so you looks- wonder how he got so high in the social strata dressing like that. <laughs> money. <laughs> oh yeah, money. <laughs> he can pay his way into popularity. Yeah, it's like, hey Harry, Orville Redenbacher called. He wants his clothes back. <laughs> I mean, it, it looks like he's going to team up with Flash Thompson, but also kind of replace him. I mean, Flash is here on school and everything, but Flash doesn't really do a whole lot of the egging and, and goading and everything. It's it's mainly well, Harry's that's, job. That's kind of been done before, you know? I mean, like, if you're going to establish these characters, you can't have Flash do the Flash thing. That's true. Flash has yeah. to take a back seat for us to um, introduce the characters. Well, also, I think that that big, dumb jock douchebag thing you know picking on the little scrawny nerdy science kid i think that's more of a high school thing than a college you know by college i don't know that that's so much you know a a thing because by that point you know you're you're older you're more adult and it's a little bit more of a a professional atmosphere for lack of a better term so unless you're watching revenge of the nerds yeah oh yeah that's true That was my first uh, full frontal nudity. Was Revenge of the Nerds? That's pretty oh, awesome! I'm all about the full frontal nudity. It's awesome. It's it's amazing what what you know what you can find there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> In addition to the nudity. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> let's see uh, what other we had. One other first appearance, uh, Professor Miles Warren. I don't know if there's a whole lot we can say about him right now, but. This is a character, if you don't know the mythology, and I'm sure that 
if Josh were here, we'd just spoil it all over the place because that tends to be our usual habit. But Professor Warren is somebody we want to keep our eyes upon. Yes. Uh, he is he is going to become very, very evil for Peter uh, way down the road, but still. Is that like well, right around like 150 or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, 140 to 150. I forget exactly when that story starts. Yeah. Or well, he starts off at a, uh, as, a, as a minor character, but he's given the name. And he progressively, like, he's kept up. He's sort of like uh, Bromwell in that, like, he's not really forgotten. And he just keeps on getting more and more appearances to the point where he's a, he's a full-on supporting character. And, and then stuff happens. Yes. Those are the main overall things I wanted to bring out. Any, uh, let's, let's go through the issue and, and any particular things you uh, want to pull out. Uh, we talked about how the purple guys were working for the cat last time, and now they're working for the master planner just out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the, the two notions I had for that were that Stan and Steve just didn't communicate on who these guys were in issue 30. And so um, Steve intended them to be you know, feeding into this story, but Stan thought they were working for the cat. The in-the-box explanation I came up with is that they kept saying we're working for the cat to throw off the idea of a master planner because every time they said that, somebody else was in the room. And so if they say, you know, the cat's going to, you know, have your revenge or something like that, I forget exactly what they said, then this idea of their secret boss would actually not be made public. That was my notion, but I don't know how well that flies. Well, did the cat end up... Uh, did he end up apprehended at the end of that issue? Yes, he did. Oh, so these these guys were out of work then. So they just went to the to the villain temp agency and and got work for the master planner. Oh, that could be it. Rather immediately, I must say. Yeah, <laughs> and they they use the same communication device because they do they do tune in to him and send him a message at one point in that issue, very similarly to what they do in the uh, in the helicopter or right whenever Spidey crawls in. Just had a message from the master planner. Use emergency plan G to fool Spider-Man. G for <laughs> gas. G for godless. <laughs> was well, it? Is it possible that maybe the cat was working for the master planner as well? I sincerely doubt it. Only, oh, only okay. because, like, when you read when you read that issue, it's like he's 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 no more than like a thief with a with a, a special uh, cat burglary gimmick. He's not really all that opposing. Ah. Uh. Yeah, he's he's very much a throwaway villain. If he if he had never been brought back, no one would ever think twice about him. The fact that he was brought back, you know, a hundred years later, was kind of surprising to me. (laughs) Josh brought up in the past that like Flash and Gwen become an item, which I to this day I never ever I don't really ever see. Um, I know at one point Gwen and Gwen and Harry were like like kind of tertiary dating. They're kind of like they they went on dates. I don't but I don't don't think they're really heavily involved. But like. We know that Harry and Gwen went to the same high school together, obviously, from this issue. But, like, I don't know. What do you think is, like, the um, – because Gwen says later, oh, I see how you became such a good friends with Flash, Harry. It's kind of confusing how this, these guys' uh, social relationship works, I guess. Because, like, Gwen is a lot more unpleasant as the issues go on. She's not so much here, but she sort of goes down that road by the end of it. But, like, Harry is immediately set up – even when he first sees Peter, he's set up to be a jerk and Flash is Flash. I was wondering if there's any confusion with how these guys are supposed to be played, or maybe if there's a, a difference, differing examples between their initial conception and then like how they were in like the next couple of issues. Is like I, I think the only, only consistent character here is Harry, but like she really shocked me because you know when I got this issue and you know bought it and read it to discover that this was Gwen Stacy. You know, and, and just because, by the way she's introduced, I you know, reading it, I had a feeling that this was more than likely her first appearance, which, you know, it turns out it, it, that's the case. 
And it really surprised me because to me, Gwen Stacy was what she will become later up until, you know, the, the, what happens to her, you know, to me, she was the, the sweet, cute, uh, attractive little platinum blonde, you know, the, the sweet little virginal girl. She didn't, didn't act like this. I mean, she's, she, she really did strike me as being older and, and kind of, uh, I don't know, like plotting or something, you know, like she, she might even have a little bit of a mean streak in her, but maybe that's just because of the company that she's keeping. She kind of looks know, like, in, um, in the issue. so it kind of looks like Samantha from, um, um, Bewitched. Yeah, <laughs> she does. <laughs> No, she definitely goes through a lot of changes, and um, as far as she and Flash go, I think that once Romita jumps on the book, there's a lot more free-floating flirting going on, as far as just, Mm -hmm. you know, lots of affections too strong a word, but just lots of romantic advances tossed around freely between uh, Mary Jane and Gwen and Harry and Flash and Peter. I think you do see Mary Jane and Harry kind of land on each other's arms quite a bit, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see some issues where Flash is sweet on Gwen and she seems not to mind before she finally lands as Peter's girlfriend. I don't remember specifically if and when that happens, but I wouldn't be surprised to see it. Because once Romita gives on the book, sex just becomes a lot more prevalent. I don't know. It's it's just kind of (laughs) weird. Awesome. (laughs) No complaints here. So, um, registering for college, they squeeze it all into two thirds of a page. And my <laughs> God, I wish it were that easy. No, I had the so. joys of registering at the University of North Texas in the fall of 1997 when their systems had not yet become fully computerized. And so I got a taste of all this and it was evil waiting in line to fill out cards and, and, and he says, you know, the forms that don't have to be filled out in duplicate had to be filled out in triplicate. And yeah, just when I came to SFA, oh my God, it was so easy. I did one application form. It, and once they accepted me, all my information was copied out to all the other systems. Now changing it is still a bitch because you have to go to the registrar to change it there, to the library to change it there, to the bursar to change it there. Because uh, I had an address change that had to be put in and I kept on finding my old address showing up in different systems, and that was just evil. But, yeah, registering for college is a lot easier than it used to be, but it's probably still a process. Financial aid is still evil. I hate the financial aid process. (laughs) I hate the fact that, like, when I came in the fall of 2009, there were probably five times where if I had not called the financial aid office to say, how are things going, I would not have found out that things were stalled and we're not moving forward, and I had not been told. You know, and it's just like, uh, an evil, evil system. Dr. Bromwell is finally starting to look like Dr. Bromwell. Mm-hmm. Speaking of appearances, I just want to note that, like, you know, you notice that Peter doesn't wear the business suit anymore? He actually oh, dresses like, suit. oh, I don't know, a student? Yeah, he's, like, dressed as a regular person now. <laughs> yeah. In fact, most, 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 of the, most of the kids in here kind of do. Like, there, there, are some, there are some idiots with suits on, but, like, most of them kind of dress like, like a... You know, college-age teenagers. Yeah, he has a whole... I mean, it's not as relaxed and easygoing as we might dress today, but it's definitely... It's not the the suit that he borrowed from Clark Kent. It's 60s casual. Yes. Yeah. But Harry Osborn, he still has the bow tie and the, and the suit, so... Well, you know, he's he's not a square like us. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to point out at the bottom of uh, page 12, those two last panels... 
those are like quintessential uh, Ditko Spider-Man poses right there. And that that one panel of Spider-Man crouching on the side of the building, I know I've seen that many, many times uh, in other places. I, I can't tell you where at the moment, but I know it was seen in like, uh, you know, like advertising. I want to say I might have had like a patch or something as a kid that had that particular pose on it. But uh, I, I really like those two. I wouldn't mind having that, like, you know, on some sort of more plain background, just like, you know, as a avatar or something for... Yeah. Yeah. It's a really nice, uh, really nice pose, though. I like that one. On that same page, that that last panel of Peter Parker, like the close-up, but the camera's kind of angled up a bit, uh-huh. that's, that's sort of an unusual... Like, that's not an angle that Ditko usually takes with his face. He doesn't usually do close-ups very often. It almost right. reminds me of a, a Gil Kane kind of shot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. I love. I laughed out loud when I read this one part. So Peter goes back to school. He's completely worn out because he was out web swinging all night looking for crime photos. Never found anything. He got back. He tried to study. That wasn't working. And he, just about the time he really wants to doze off, it's time to go to school. So he goes to school and he's dragging his ass through the campus the whole day. Because this is two nights in a row that he hasn't slept. Oh, yeah. You know, he's he's fried. And, you know, everybody's standing around going, oh, that Peter Parker, you know, what a dick and all this stuff. And, and you know, but Gwen's the one person that that still isn't completely down on him yet. And she says, I still have the feeling that he's really not a bad sort deep down. And Flash Thompson delivers a completely idiotic line. He says, I don't get it. Chicks always seem to go for those eggheaded skinny creeps. And I'm thinking... Dude, since when? Are they always going for jock douchebags like you? Since when do they go go for the eggheads? Not in my lifetime. He's still in Liz Allen withdrawals. (laughs) Chicks seem to always go for the guys who actually don't get any women in real life. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. It's just, it's so ridiculous. I mean, there's one point where, was it page 11? The, hey Parker, the gang's going across the street for some sodas. How about? Sorry, I can't. Got to rush now. Well, Gwen, we try. Got any other suggestions? I just don't understand him, Harry. Right, y'all don't understand him. You don't know what's going on. You don't know why he's being this way. So be civil until you find out that he hates you or something like that. Innocent uh, until proven guilty. Right. I, I kept waiting for that moment where. Maybe Gwen would be the one to take some initiative and find out, oh, his aunt's in the hospital and dying. Oh, the poor guy, you know, and and then she goes to everybody else and tells them, hey, you know, this is what's going on. And and then they have like a pity party for Peter or something. And it never happened. I was really I really thought that it would, though, you know, just because that's kind of a cliched type of thing too you know but that was one that just didn't get touched on in this issue this continues for the rest of Dicko's run like, like the entire school pretty much like like are, are on the, he's on he's on the outs with everybody until the very first issue with Ramita where everybody's his friend although I have to <laughs> say that Lily's and my Spider-Man reading has gotten to the late 60s I think 69 was the last one we read but 69 dude 69 dude favorite number so I was going to say that the whole like going and finding out what's really happening with Peter and why he's acting the way he is, is never something that Gwen likes to do. She would much rather jump to an emotional conclusion and, um, like, just, Betty. You know, like Betty, but yeah, oh, she's nuts. She is. <laughs> hey, speaking of her 
And I, I hope I'm not stealing your note, John, for page 14. But that fourth panel right there. Now, don't get me wrong. I love me some uh, Steve Ditko art, and and I'm really, uh, really getting into these old issues. And, and, you know, some of these stories I'm honestly reading for the first time. However, panel four right there. Now, granted, I missed the issue before this one, but was in was Betty Brant in like some sort of car accident or something recently? Because <laughs> it's not natural for her head to be able to do that. Okay. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's practically pulling an exorcist right there. Her I was heads, thinking that she went to the yeah. exorcist school of acting. <laughs> well, it would explain her behavior, I guess. You know, really seriously. On page fourteen, the, the the Jonah scene up at the top. The narration says, "Now let's change our scene briefly as we pay a visit to that demon newspaper man, J. Jonah." <laughs> and I was just like, "Okay, demon newspaper man." I can see. Like, applying that to a really devoted, successful reporter who's always getting the stories, you know? But, no, in Jonah's case, he, he's demonic. That's just how he is. <laughs> he's evil. In page three, he says, they're talking about, you know, how there's no news out there. And he says, well, what about those robberies of all that scientific equipment? There ought to be a story somewhere in there to find. And I was thinking, okay, the robberies of scientific equipment that we've been talking about for three issues now, we still haven't gone after that to find out what's going on. <laughs> um, it was set up, John. Don't you know? <laughs> and Foswell. Okay. Now, <laughs> I should have mentioned this in the introductions, but I didn't. Um, Scott, you were on an episode of From Crisis to Crisis recently. Uh huh. And that was episode 69, right? Yes. Because it's, it's, it's going to be about a month old by the time this episode goes live. But you were on 69. I was on a couple episodes earlier. I did not get to comment on on Sam Foswell. Oh, yeah. But when yeah. I read those issues, to my mind, he looks exactly like Frank. God, he does, too, because except for the cigarette in his mouth on that third panel on page 14, he could be Alfred Pennyworth, which was the joke I made on FCTC, was that Sam Foswell looks to me like Alfred Pennyworth. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> when I got to those issues and I saw Foswell, Lily and I were both like, he's named Foswell, and he looks like Foswell. That can't be a mistake. That can't be an accident. I guess after he you know, dies, he gets reincarnated in the DC universe. It, I mean, it could totally be some sort of you know sneaky homage thing. Because, you know, those guys that have floated back and forth between Marvel and DC and then back to to marvel again and and vice versa they love to do little stuff like that you know yeah. that sometimes take years to to be discovered or to pay off so it, it wouldn't surprise me at all especially with you know if uh if roger stern had any hand in in that thing because you know clearly he's a a devoted spider-man fan so yeah it wouldn't surprise me at all if sam foswell owes directly back to this particular foswell and it's not like Foswell is ever mentioned again after he dies. I mean, he might be occasionally, but you know, in, in the, really in, the in 1990, whenever reprints of these issues were not as common as they are now, you know, using that character and just giving him a different first name. Well, I think, I think it's like get away with it pretty easily. I think it's also worth noting that he's also not the kind of character that you know Marvel is going to drag DC to court over either. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, could you imagine it? <laughs> Can you imagine logging onto the internet and checking your comic book news and hearing about the Foswell trials, and, <laughs> along with the Seagull, the Seagull battles and the Kirby battles and the Foswell trial going on? We'd all start, we'd all start like, like, just read that blog entry and then like, take a swig. Comic book resources has the exclusive. <laughs> can't be happening, man. <laughs> Did we talk? Did we talk at all about the whole Betty Nitz scene? No, no. That that's next up. I just think it's funny that when Jonas says your boyfriend, she thinks of Peter. Whenever there's another guy who's proposed to her and is waiting to find out an answer, and Peter like <laughs> slammed the door in her face, saying, yeah. how, how, "How dare you propose to another guy while dating with me? You cock teasing bitch." Yeah. I mean, he should have said that a little louder, but it was there. Let's see. My okay. next note is actually a couple pages ahead. Um, let me know if I'm flipping ahead too far. No, I'm, but, I'm good until uh, I was like on 16. But oh, okay. Mine, mine was 17. So go, yeah, run with yours, John. Okay. Is it the first panel? If it's because she says you, young man, are going to regret that, I promise. Because I think that's the panel right there that cemented in my mind that she's much older than than Peter. Because if she was even his same exact age, I think calling him young man just rings wrong you know what i mean it yeah and, and look at her face and her hair and her stance she really gives me the the impression of a of a woman much older and, and or, or at least a couple years you know I, there's there's definitely a, a difference in social class in college between someone fresh out of high school and someone who's been there for a couple of years so i, I could see that and i don't know unless no, she's dead by the time peter graduates high school so i don't know that there's ever any reason to think that they're the same same year in college so yeah she might have a couple of years on him yeah that's that's interesting we have to keep an eye on that and of course she goes through so many changes over the years that if that were the intention at the beginning it might have gotten lost later on yeah uh no what i was going to say is that you know okay so gwen stacy her death is really all aunt may's fault she dies (laughs) (laughs) spoiler alert (laughs) because okay so aunt may is sick right and Aunt May, Aunt May is sick. always sick. Yeah, she's always <laughs> sick, and even, even you know she fakes it sometimes, but I'm pretty sure. But um, <laughs> just ask J J J Z Fakes it, the sex. I couldn't. <laughs> I see what you did there. Isn't that necrophilia or pretty close to it? <laughs> well, it's nasty. The Aunt May's a screamer, so he knows that she's not dead. Oh, oh dude, okay. I didn't even want to think about that. <laughs> I'm not gonna be able to sleep tonight. <laughs> Uh, John, you sickened me. <laughs> I know, I'm sick and twisted. But no, so she's sick. That leads to Peter being preoccupied. And if she, if Peter had not been preoccupied, if he had, you know, been totally socially engaging, Gwen Stacy wouldn't have cared. It's the fact that, you know, he doesn't give her a tumble, as we find out later, that, um, and then, so Gwen Stacy pursues Peter, and therefore they're together, and she gets killed by the Green Goblin. So if she had, if Aunt May had never gotten sick here, that whole sequence of events would never have happened. That was my big, um, big realization in the continent. Well, you know, it was probably a plot for her to, you know, for her old team Mary Jane scheme, you know. Bottom of page sixteen. The last page. Okay, so Patch Patch approaches Spidey, and Spidey says, "Sorry, Mister, I'm flat broke myself." And Patch says, "Wait, this isn't a touch. Uh-huh. There, there, there's got to be a joke somewhere in there, right?" <laughs> I'm not trying to molest you. That, well, that that's one of those expressions that's that's kind of just fallen out of use. But uh, there's a Bugs Bunny. It's the best best way I can describe it. 
there's a Bugs Bunny cartoon where Bugs Bunny's on a train and he looks out the, tr- the box car or whatever he's in. He looks out the door and there's all these bunny rabbits everywhere on the like on the hillsides and the horizon and in the trees and everything. And he like shuts the door and hides and he talks to us, the audience, and he says, eh, my poor relations. He goes, they're always looking for a touch. And what it means is they're looking for, you know, like like money like a handout type of thing because he's like the rich the rich relative or whatever Uh, that that's how i became familiar with that expression if if it means something a little bit more a little bit different i hope somebody writes in to to correct us or elaborate or whatever i'd I'd love to know where that originated but that off the top of my head that's the only other time i've ever heard of it you know yeah that that was that was what i took from it like you know touching somebody's arm or leg to get their attention and then, you know, asking for money or whatever. But yeah. Yeah. Page 17. In case you weren't clear yet on the whole master planner bit and who these guys work for, we're going to say his name four times on just this page alone. So master planner, master planner, master planner. That's, that's the point of this whole story in case no one's, no one's figured that out yet in their reading. Now, um, let me, there's something that, that really, and please feel free, absolutely free to cut all of this out if you feel like it like it spoils a head or something. But I really enjoyed this three part story. Um, like I told you off air before we, you know, just before we got recording, um, I'm pretty sure this is the first time I read all three issues, you know, in sequence and, and got the complete story in, you know, in one reading. And it really bugged me that this issue really plays up the master planner, you know, who is he? What is he? What is his plan? Blah, blah, blah. And it's blown. It's completely blown on the second page of the next issue. Uh, immediately it's revealed who he is. And I, I was like, wow. You I was going to mention that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, why set all that up and make such a mystery of it? If there, you're, there's not going to be any mystery come next issue. It's interesting because in the spectacular Spider-Man cartoon, they opened the second season with like episodes, uh, you know, foreshadowing the master planner. Who is the master planner? And then, um, like the penultimate episode, the, literally the cold opening starts. The very first thing you see is Doctor Octopus being revealed as the master planner. And I remember when I reviewed that for the Cross Space, I said, "Wow, that was pointless." But I yeah. guess they had just looked at this, the original comic book. Completely anticlimactic. It, it really is because I, I think that it, the the reveal um, would have been much better. You know, when we get to next issue, that that panel where he's actually attacking Spider-Man for the first, and he, you know, each one of his four mechanical arms is grabbing one of Spider-Man's limbs. That is a beautiful piece of art, and that would have been the perfect place, I think, to reveal. Oh my God, it's Doc Ock! You know, to but, have to have Spider-Man find out when we find out. When we find exactly, yeah, and and I'm really kind of surprised by that, but. Uh, I had a note on page 17 as well, and uh, it's funny because this actually shows much, much clearer in the black and white essentials, but you can kind of see it also uh, in this, even though it's colored. Um, The very first panel on page 17, if you'll notice, below the waterline, because we've got like half the panel is uh, out of the water and, and half the panel is below the water, below the water the inking style is much thinner and not near as, as thick or heavy as it is above. And in black and white, that really looks sharp. It really denotes, you know, mm-hmm. the, the difference in, in, you know, above water is versus below water. I thought that was a really nice touch 
on, I, I guess it would be Ditko or, or whoever the anchor was, you know, to, to do that extra artistic step, you know, because that, that it, it, it looks very realistic, you know, that, that there's that difference in, in how it looks. I'm just looking up the anchor now because I'd, I'd, the only art credit goes to Steve Ditko on the page, but yeah. Ditko always um, stuff. Oh, did he? I'm, I'm, I'm actually possibly he did because like I don't remember it. everything I've seen him, especially with Mr. A, which was in black and white. He always, I've always seen his, his, his stuff inked by him. So how is that Mr. Always... A stuff? I'd really like to read that. It's it's pretty twisted. <laughs> I've read, <laughs> I read I think I read the first issue when I I did a. Uh, I watched the Ditko documentary back when I was a freshman uh, in 2007, and I, I I was inspired to do a Ditko art project because I was an art major. So I researched some of his stuff, and I found an issue of Mr. A online. And you think that any of the, any like the really hard stuff he does in here is like amplified by 100 in that stuff com- comparatively. Like there's the kid who looks exactly like Flash Thompson, who is an absolute dick, and he basically spoilers dies at the end. It's sort of like a Twilight Zone uh, kind of story, but but without the magic realism. And mm-hmm. there are no like there are, there are no easy ways about it. Like it, it's it's pretty dark for like because it's completely in his style. It's like you're reading a sixties a sixties comic book, but it's like an EC comic book. It, it's it's actually quite awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you, you gotta find it. I'll see if I can find a link. I did confirm. Uh, he does ink and finish all of his all of his own work throughout his Spider-Man run. So, so yeah, he knew exactly what he wanted there. But you're right; I hadn't thought about that because they do the coloring, and I never read these in black and white. Um, but you can tell even when it's colored that yeah, the inking is so much lighter there. Um, Was anybody but, else waiting for Wolverine to show up and fight Foswell for the patch disguise? <laughs> I completely forgot that. Yeah. I, I wish I could it. completely forget that. <laughs> I was reading, I've been reading a lot of the old X-Men's um, from like 1981, right whenever Burn finished. And there's this scene where they're in the danger room and Wolverine, Colossus like gets off balance and knocks Wolverine and Wolverine's mad because his claws are still extended and his arms going down towards Nightcrawler. And he's like, watch out, you're going to make me hurt Nightcrawler. And I'm just thinking, you know, pop your claws back in, you know, you know how to do right. that, right? But anyways, right. that's that's a random random tidbit. Page nineteen at the bottom, uh, middle panel. After Patch has turned everyone into the uh, into the police, and the police say, "Okay, Patch, we won't be needing you anymore." And Patch looks so sad. I I did have a note here, just again, just being a wise ass like I tend to be. Uh, I hate to tell you, Mister Li- uh, Lab Scientist Sirs, but that old bag is going to be around for a long time to come. No matter how hard we try, <laughs> or, or pray. <laughs> The poor one can't last much longer. <laughs> you want to bet? When time they're going to actually kill her off, it has to be an actress, right? Oh my god, please don't, don't, don't. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, I, I just finished my first Clone Saga trade, so the whole Clone Saga thing is on my mind. I've been listening to Clone Saga Chronicles, so... I don't have many autographed Spider-Man things, you know, titles uh, or issues or anything, but I do have a couple. And I could not tell you why, but Mark Bagley came to what was then my local mall when I was living in Georgia. It was the, um, oh God, I can't think of the name. Arbor Place, I think was the name. It was the mall in Douglasville, Georgia. Now anybody knows where Douglasville, Georgia is. I mean, it's pretty much the sticks. 
So what he was doing out there, I couldn't tell you. But he was there for like, I'm pretty sure it was just like a one-day engagement. And I took Scotty, who was really little at the time, and we got some comics signed. And the one that I took, I think I took two, actually. I took, but the, the Spider-Man issue proper that I took was uh, Amazing 400, because that's still one of my favorite stories. And we ended up having quite the long discussion about, you know, how great the issue was. And uh, I, I I got the feeling like he didn't want to come right out and really, you know, say everything how he felt about the issue. But I got the distinct impression that he was not happy that that, you know, how that whole thing ended up playing out, you know, much later with the actress and all that crap. Right. He, he was really disappointed because he... You know, as soon as I laid the book down, you know, he was like, ah, you know, and I could tell it was like one of his favorites. And we got into this great discussion about it. So I felt for the guy because that that's oh, that's such a good story. And it was a perfect send off, you know, for that character. It actually really made me feel for a character that I've long despised. Suddenly (laughs) I I liked her in that issue, you know. Right. And I guess all you can do with things like that. I mean, everything in comics is going to get retconned at some point. And so all you can do is, you know, enjoy the stories for what they are, even if, you know, there are other stories that poop on them. That's true. That's true. So on the spider's web this month, Stan, the saucy man Goldstein, (laughs) says that the title of issue 27, Bring Back My Goblin to Me, is a thing of beauty and a joy forever. In fact, there are a lot of people on, in the letters page who are really amazed at the title. I'm not entirely sure why, but um, almost every letter mentions it. There's one person who says he hates it, but almost everyone else says that they thought it was really awesome. That, that was me going back in time and doing it. <laughs> it's also worth noting out that as a sixth grade school teacher, Stan feels that Marvel mags are good for our students. They're on a higher reading level than the other comics and present some interesting science phenomena which are stimulating to their imaginations. I was thinking that there's some been stuff stuff in the news recently about that. I was like, can you imagine a school teacher saying that comics are good for students to read? Kind of kind of crazy there. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you catch this one here? There were two that jumped out at me as being exceptional. The first one was on the second page of the of the letters page. It's by Donald McGregor of I guess this is West it's W Warwick Rhode Island I guess this is West Warwick Rhode Island uh-huh and that name kind of scratched at the back of my brain but I couldn't quite place it so I looked it up yep sure enough Donald F McGregor um born in Rhode Island uh, this is the Don McGregor that would go on to be a comic writer and author of one of the very first graphic novels. And he went on to work for Marvel years later. He worked on books like Kill Raven and and stuff like that. And he did the uh, Saber graphic novel with uh, Paul Galassi. So I thought that was really neat. That his and his, uh, his Black Panther run uh, in yeah. Jungle Action is considered yeah. to be like, you know, Marvel's first graphic novel published serially. That yeah. it was, you know, it, it the the level of complexity to that really long tale is is I haven't read it yet. I want to, but um, I've I've understood it's been pretty awesome. If that's the run I'm thinking it is, it's some pretty wild stuff because uh, Rich Buckler drew a lot of that, and man, mm-hmm. was it pretty! Really nice mm-hmm. stuff. Don says that he uh, many scholars probe over the writing of Conan Doyle to figure out the dates of Sherlock Holmes' adventures. 
but I think in 100 years, some scholar will set down a list on the life of Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. <laughs> and I was just like, well, it's more like 50 years later, but but here we are. He's, he's right. Yeah, he's absolutely right. Wow. I missed that entirely. You're right. Yeah, because I just kind of skimmed all the different letters here, but he nailed it. Did you catch this one here from, from Ken Jacobs? He says, Spidey has had the same costume since he gained his powers and it's getting a little boring. You should keep the same design, which is perfect, but change the colors. Green for the red and yellow for the blue. Oh my goodness gracious God. <laughs> now I I found online you can, you know, if you look up like Spider-Man coloring pages or something like that, you can get these like black and white pages for, you know, that you can print out with your printer for kids to color or something. And I took one of them and colored it the way he suggests. Yeah, not, not pretty. What it looks like almost is like, you know, sometimes in the comics, like Superman would fly into like a nuclear reactor to like, you know, save it from overloading or, and he'd come out glowing or something. That's what it looks like. It looks like the Spider-Man, like just chock full of radiation <laughs> suit, you know, cause it, it, it's horrible yeah. looking. You know, it it's reminds like it's glowing. Me Ultimate Spider-Man, the arc they had called Deadpool. The cover of the first issue of that has Spider-Man with Kitty Pride in a, you know, trying to be Spider-Girl kind of costume. And it's that exact color scheme. Oh, no way. Yeah, green, <laughs> you know, down the arms, the middle of the torso, and and then yellow on the sides and, you know, down her legs and stuff. And yeah... It's terrible looking. It's really, really bad. And when I first read that two or three years ago, not knowing who Deadpool was and thinking that might be her, I was just like, what is this? You know, what is this costume and who's Deadpool and why is she on my cover? But yeah. Who's <laughs> Deadpool and why is she on my cover? Exactly. Well, I, I know better now. I, I've learned the errors of my mistakes. We get an announcement that the X-Men and Daredevil are going monthly. Yay! They were the last of Marvel's superhero titles to cross that line. This can only mean that the X-Men blog is going to have to either work that much harder to catch up, or I'm just going to get farther and farther behind until school <laughs> lets out. One or the other. I don't know. For the coin and pick. <laughs> There's a, currently a theory going around that my podcasting life is actually interfering with my student life. We'll see how that turns out when I get the grades at the end of the semester. And there are several people who are calling for the Green Goblin's identity to be revealed, saying it has gone on long enough, and they want to know who he is deal with it for another several months yeah it's it's been a year at this point from 14 to 26 was one year so i guess that's too long for people in the 60s to to wait for a story to be you know resolved doesn't he turn out to be that background character that can switch himself between caucasian and and, and <laughs> the white guy in blackface or is he the yeah. black guy in whiteface i don't know <laughs> well you know <laughs> In the ads, we had two more Triumphs for Marvel now on sale. The uh, Fantastic Four, number 45, the plot that's been going on with Medusa and Gorgon, finally takes us to meet the Inhumans, where Johnny Storm finally meets the love of Quicksilver's life. <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's kind of silly how quickly and easily he falls head over heels for Crystal, and then how quickly and easily she later you know leaves him for another man later on. If you'll pardon my tangent, I'm just curious, fellas. What do you guys think of the Inhumans? Because personally, never, never got into the Inhumans. I, I never really understood the the appeal. But what do you guys think? I have no opinion. I, th I think Black Bolt's kind of cool, but I don't. Yeah, 
never followed them. I think they're interesting as a sci-fi concept. So far in my reading, I've only read their appearances in early Fantastic Four stuff. I haven't gotten to any of their featured stories that they'll have in the 70s, so I don't really have an opinion on them as far as that goes yet. But I find them interesting enough that I, I would like to read more about them and hopefully read good stuff. But at this point, I really just don't know a whole lot. But they're cool looking, and Blackpool's cool looking, and the idea of having this whole family of people with superpowers that lives separate from mankind and with, you know, being genetically engineered and all that stuff, I find that intriguing. I just don't know if they've done any good stories with it. Cool. Also on that page was Journey into Mystery 122, where the Absorbing Man takes on Odin. I don't know how that goes down, but I imagine that Absorbing Man is going to be very sorry that he thought that that could work. <laughs> He's and, a great villain that I'm so sorry degenerated into a joke, because he really was cool, and, and I think could be cool again. Loved his early uh, Thor uh, appearances. Yeah, I read his first fight with Thor that went on for two issues, and it was epic. Yeah. I mean, Thor did not know what he was going to do. And um, I thought the resolution at the end of that issue was, was pretty cool. And, and yeah, he is just a joke now. He, he showed up in a Spider-Man backup recently where he was just like, you know, Arr! I can absorb the, the rock in this table and I'm going to hit you with it. And it's just, you know, there's a lot of good stuff there. He's vastly powerful if used right. Mm-hmm. I agree. And there's another ad page for the annuals that are on sale right now. The third Fantastic Four annual that we talked about, and the Marvel Tales number two that we talked about, and Sergeant Fury annual number one. It's one of the first modern stories about like what happened to the commandos after the war. And I believe they're in Vietnam in this issue. Um, I may be completely wrong on that, but that's what I'm thinking. And um, you said you had some ads that you were looking at? Yeah. Well, just the one that's across from page 13. It's this... Uh... You know, make money Saturday morning shoe store, and you got this like super pervy, creepy looking dude holding this briefcase full of shoes. And I just, I don't like this solicitous grin on this guy's face at all. It makes me very uncomfortable. It's like, stop looking at me, dude. <laughs> and then across from the very last story page of the comic, you've got another one. It says, if you are 15 or under, Here's an easy way to make up to $10 an hour on Saturday mornings. I'm thinking, what is up with all these Saturday morning get a job ads? I'm like, screw that. Cartoons were on on Saturday morning. I'm not getting a job. <laughs> and uh, the last one I had, and don't ask me what possessed me to look this up. I really don't know. I, I, I guess what it was that on the back cover, you've got uh, this ad. Uh, for it's another one of these you know learn how to draw type of things this famous, ad was all over the place i got yeah so tired of this ad you know famous artist schools i guess what made me look it up was all right you've got this picture of this very sorry looking i mean he looks like he's sad this artist guy and uh it says albert dorn it says probably the greatest money maker in the history of commercial art and i thought well if that's true how come i never heard of this guy so i looked him up and uh, here's what I found out that I thought was interesting. All right. Now, granted, this uh, this comic is only dated. Uh, I'm assuming that they, they this was still the days where, even though this is the December 65 issue, it was probably out on the stands well in advance of that. But anyway, historically speaking, this is the December 65 issue, right? 
<laughs> this poor guy, Albert Dorn, died December 15th, 1965. Oh, wow. So I thought, wow, what an unfortunate uh, bit of coincidence there. And a further coincidence, that's also one year to the day before Walt Disney died. So I just thought that was all very, uh, very strange little circle about. But, uh, you know, there is a wiki on this Albert Dorn guy. Now, they don't call him the greatest moneymaker in the history of commercial art. But, you know, evidently he was at least a name in commercial art. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, this... uh. This issue came out in September, so it and then you know they printed they put it together and printed it you know some month or two before that. So, ah, uh, um, but yeah, wow, he died not too long after. <laughs> well, when I saw that, you know that that he died in December of '65, and this was the December. It reminded me of uh, I think something very similar happened with JFK um, a couple years before that, where there was some I want to say it was a Superman story where he was supposed to have some interaction with JFK that would have hit the stands or maybe it even did hit the stands. I forget like right at the same time that he was assassinated. I remember that. I think I heard about this. Yeah. And that's what kind of, it put me in mind of when I, when I read that, but that's all I got. Uh, But the only thing I had here was the mighty Marvel checklist. That's been taking up space in the letters column has been moved to its own page now along with the news items to make the very first Marvel bullpen bulletins Ooh. in this issue. And as we go along, if there are any news items that concern Spidey, I'll be sure to mention them. Uh, there's not this time. But there is a picture of the Green Goblin with his amazingly humongous ears <laughs> thinking, can you guess what's in this mysterious mailing tube? I can't do it like JR did it, but you know. So if you send off for this mysterious mailing tube, you'll get a surprise. And it's not anthrax. Um, <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, awesome. <laughs> I know, I had a little, little t- nod back to 2008 there for you. Um, plus the opportunity to buy a Spider-Man t-shirt. And I would really like to have one of these old school Spider-Man t-shirts. Uh, yes. They're only offered up to large, though, which is not my size at all. But, but yeah, it'd be all like, you know, faded at this point. I could walk around with a faded 1960s Spider-Man t-shirt. I would be cool. There was a company a couple years back that was doing reproductions, really, really nice reproductions of all these old early 60s Marvel shirts, because I can't remember what the circumstances were now, but they sent me a free child size one. That was the the Fantastic Four one. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It was just these like headshots of the Fantastic Four, and it was like the lumpy thing before he became truly rocky. He was more like like lumps of clay or yeah. You know? yeah that was um, back when the lines on his face were more just like modeling rather than like yeah. shapes to his orange rocks. Yeah. Well, I, I, I say could... we go to a break and come back and knock out issue thirty-two. After these messages, we'll be right back. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. This is ridiculous.
half-witted, scruffy-looking nerf herder. Oh, no. Don't be alarmed. It's only a laser sword fight. Star Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express, non-stop star speeder service to the moon of Endor. All passengers, please prepare for immediate boarding. No! Cannot get your ship off. <laughs> Lando Calrissian is a positive role model in the realm of science fiction fantasy. Lando Calrissian. Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. We would be honored if you would join us. So here we are with Amazing Spider-Man number 32, which was released on October 12th, 1965, with a cover date of January 1966. And giving us the synopsis here will be John Wilson. Go, John. Oh, wait, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we have this massively dynamic cover. I mean, awesome cover with Spider-Man just ripping apart. Well, it kind of looks like it's a staircase to nowhere. But setting that aside, it looks really, really cool. There, there are these two guys on it who are about to go flying and breaking body parts. If Spider-Man doesn't just happen to set that thing down just the right way. And there's a car smashed up and lying on its side as guys try to climb out of it. And the title is Man on a Rampage. Oh, just Yes. Spider-Man is tearing up the stuff. <laughs> and there's this little inset of dear, sweet Aunt May on her deathbed where she belongs. <laughs> so it's everything you wanted to see on the cover. Spider-Man going crazy, Aunt May dying. <laughs> With his Aunt May it. gravely ill in the hospital, Spider-Man fights as never before. Kill the bitch! Kill her, I say! <laughs> uh, I would love to see this, fo- this uh, cover photoshop to replace man on a rampage with spider-man loses his <laughs> that would be awesome very much society seal of approval exactly we also have in the top left panel a return to marvel comics group instead of marvel pop art productions that did yep. not last long evidently and we're going to talk about that more when we get to the uh, bullpen bulletins open up to a splash page that i have to confess i'm really just not that crazy about it's the master planners underwater base that we saw last issue and you know kind of big on the page but i kind of feel like the picture is kind of boring um the building is lacking a lot of detail there's not a lot else on the panel besides the building and i think i can explain that if you notice uh in this issue and the next issue um they they don't really try to like kind of cover it up with with the with the second cover of the splash page they kind of just jump into the story and even the credits aren't really all that sensationalistic I don't know what kibitzing means, but they're kind of straight. So I think they, they were kind of like, you know, not, not really in the mood for dicking around, just went to try to continue the story. That could be it, because this is in the story. There's, there's a speech balloon coming out. But, like, when the art came in, I don't know if this was necessarily on Stan's mind when he saw it, but there's a big, massive space of nothing that he fills in with this huge yellow caption box. And I, I just don't know if they were trying to make up for... Bad art or what? But anyways, it does say... It, it um, doesn't look like Ditko to me was my issue with it. Because when I opened it up and looked at it for the first time, I thought, wow, does this remind me of, uh, like, Buscema from early Avengers or something like that? Mm. You know? It really doesn't look like Ditko to me. And that fish that's directly in front of the underwater base, I swear it looks like it has an arm. It cracks me up every time <laughs> I look at it. 
Hello. <laughs> See, the big, huge caption balloon says, prepare yourself for a startling surprise. <gasps> you and Spidey are about to meet one of his most powerful former foes as the teenage web spinner plunges into battle with every tick of the clock bringing him closer to defeat. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. The title again is Man on a Rampage, and our credits, like you said, they're kind of lackluster here. They read script and editing by Stan Lee, plot and illustration by Steve Ditko, lettering and kibitzing by Artie Simic. And kibitzing is not the same as kvetching. I looked it up. We do hear, as we said, the master planner complaining about Spider-Man's interference from the previous issue. We turn the page, and we see the master planner is none other than BJ Cosmos. Not again. <laughs> not again. <laughs> No, it's Dr. Octopus. And yeah, All right. like we said last, uh, last segment, Scott, they could have waited a little bit with that reveal, because there's really no reason to know it at this point. Yeah. He's not doing anything particularly octopusy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I said it. <laughs> I noticed he's not fat, either. I, I like that. I like this, the svelte Doc Ock. Yeah, I made a note that he has kind of uh, lost some weight. It's sort of like, um, I don't know if either of you watched Friends. But there was a character on there named Chandler, and you could, like, you could watch the history of his battle with drugs, because he'd be all, like, you know, really thin one season, and really fat the next, and really thin the next, and you could tell when he was strung out and when he was, you know, anyways. Um, so maybe this I should is... laugh at that, but, uh... <laughs> well, it, it is a little bit funny, but, you know, he's, he's, he's a healthy man now, so it's good. So Dr. Octopus is talking to no one in particular about his motivations, which is kind of cool because we find out why he's doing everything. And turns out he is seeking to gain mastery of lingering radiation, completely unaware that these experiments will cause his body to waste away, so that he basically has to wear a full-body diaper 570 issues from now. <laughs> That's the stupidest reason. Mastery of lingering radiation. Yes. Uh, Josh isn't here, so I'll say it. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll buy that. <laughs> nobody ever wants to gain mastery over lingering farts. I, I think that would be an impressive power. I could take over the world by that. Maybe not. No. <laughs> so the next scene, Betty sees Peter walking through the press room of the Daily Bugle. I was hoping Peter would show up. I simply have to speak to him. Peter, wait a moment. I want to talk to you. And Peter keeps on walking, so she runs over to him. He's trying to pretend he didn't hear me, but I won't let him. Peter Parker, you can't keep avoiding me that way, as though we're no more than strangers. I hoped she'd be out to lunch. I didn't want to face her. You must tell me what's wrong. What have I said? Or done? And I'm thinking, what? What have you said? <laughs> well, let's just think about this, shall we, Betty? When Aunt May had a heart attack and I had to stay with her for a month, you took that opportunity to start seeing another boy. Yet the whole time you've been crazy bitch jealous every time another girl even talked <laughs> to me. Then, when you got so mad about the Smythe robot thing, you stopped talking to me and didn't even attend my high school graduation. And then, as soon as Ned Leeds gets back from Europe, you're ready to marry him. So you tell me, Betty, what do you think you've said or done lately that might be me making me mad at you? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, Peter doesn't even refer to all this on the panel. He just thinks about the very last conversation they actually had, where he found out she would never have anything to do with him if she were to find out he's Spider-Man. And this is when Ned Leeds enters the scene, because he's going to be helpful. He knows he can't get an answer from Betty until she works things out with Peter. Why he's okay with this, I have no freaking clue. You know, because I always want the woman that I'm going to propose to to clear things with her ex-boyfriend before she says yes. 
So he decides to help things along by trying to coax Peter into talking to Betty, because, of course, that would get him closer to his nookie. Peter decides to play the make Betty mad so she goes away card. And he tells Ned off and shoves him into a door, which causes some stuff to fall off shelves the next room over, which happens to be where Jonah is walking. (laughs) He comes out in a huff, but Peter takes the chance to show him some photos, thinking how Betty must be mad enough now to marry Ned and forget all about him. But I'll carry a torch forever, except that you won't. Because teenagers always think their emotions are the hugest thing in the world, but no, you'll get over her. I'm not going to say you'll never <clears throat> drink from that well again when the opportunity arises, but you'll still oh, get over Oh, oh that, that's an awful metaphor. <laughs> 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 so Jonah rejects the photos because they're junk. But as the anguished youth turns to leave, Betty confronts him. Your little routine didn't fool me one bit, Peter Parker. I know you too well not to realize that you're just putting on an act for my benefit. Think what you want to. It's your privilege. Peter, listen. Whatever is bothering you, why won't you tell me? Perhaps we can work it out together. Sure, I can see her working out. The fact that I happen to be Spider-Man. Forget it. Nothing's bothering me. I'm happy as a lark. So I like in the art how he's, how he's uh, when he's walking away, he's... That's, that's pretty nice from Dick, yeah. He's doing what? Oh, wait, he's not actually doing it. Uh, he, he, on the third panel, when he's walking away, he's flipping her off. Oh, he should be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I get the distinct impression that he could have looked her square in the eyes and said, here's the deal. You are a crazy bitch. And she still would have thought, you know, whatever she <laughs> wants to think. that uh, He's just saying that? that because... Yeah. Oh my God. She. She. I, are we about done with her yet? Because I'm really getting tired of her. I'm not positive, but I think she's about to make her exit as a as a regular emotional point. I mean, she's always around as like a background character for for a long time, but um, the next I think it's, she's the last the last uh, appearance of her for, for for a little bit. Oh, okay. So they part ways, all sad and angsty. But even his tortured thoughts of Betty Brant are driven out of his mind as Peter reaches the hospital where Aunt May is on the critical list. But he gets pulled in to see a doctor, who is not Dr. Bromwell, uh, who gives us the second big reveal of the issue. Aunt May is suffering because of a radioactive particle in her blood, which the medical team is unable to extract. And Peter realizes he's the one to blame here. He gave Aunt May a blood transfusion way back in... A no prize to the first Spidey fan who tells us what issue this occurred in. Forgetful Stan. Yeah, because you don't know. (laughs) Forgetful Stan doesn't know. It was issue 10. I had to look it up. And this transferred some of his own radioactivity to her. Only in her case, it's proving harmful. So not only is Aunt May dying, but it's Peter's fault. Actually, I was trying to think that didn't we um, didn't we decide it was actually Liz's fault back in the day? Didn't he wasn't going to give the transfusion, but somebody told him he had to. Peter, what are you saying? And then Flash is like, oh, I wish you're scared of needles. And he's like, they're right. I can't let Aunt May down now. She'll die without this blood. And then as it turns out, she'll die with the blood. <laughs> right, right. So, damn I if hope, you do. I hope listeners everywhere will forgive me for this, but I must ask the, the, the question that I'm sure is on at least some, at least one other person's mind. Why is she dying and not out web swinging if she's got spider blood now? I just I have to know these things, you know. You know what? If I if I could if I could make it up on the fly, and I will. I think it's because okay, Peter Parker was a teenager when he had been by a spider. So if you want to make the argument that as his hormones were changing, the body's his body was changing to adapt more to manhood, 
the the radiation in, in this in the spider DNA affected it so where it enhanced his uh, growing normal abilities, whereas Aunt May is already on her way out of this this stage of life. It's having a rapid uh, deterioratory effect. Maybe that might get a no prize. <laughs> uh, that works for me. <laughs> Keep in mind, I am not a man of science. Uh, <laughs> well, neither science. was Stanley. Not <laughs> <laughs> true. So add the guilt over you know being irresponsible for Aunt May to the guilt complex he already has about Uncle Ben, and Peter is working himself into a self-loathing frenzy of anger. He decides he won't let this happen again. And that a man that we haven't even heard mentioned in the book for over two years, Dr. Kirk Connors, is the only man who can help. Because he's a specialist in this field. Now, how uh, exactly is Kurt a specialist in radioactivity and blood? Yeah, he's not. He's not. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, is my, this may actually be the genesis of my major beef with Kurt Connors. Holy crap, does he have two arms? I think I he has just a noticed. I don't know, dude. I'm looking at the CBR that you sent me, and that first panel on page six, he has two hands. That's not him. Oh, is it? Oh, I'm sorry. Duh. Okay. That's where he gets the blood sample. (laughs) I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. He has a stump. (laughs) But yeah, this may be the beginning of, you know, Now I like this character. Don't get me wrong. I really, really like Kirk Connors and the lizard. However... And I'm sure Spider-Man comics aren't the only thing to do this. Um, as a matter of fact, I know they're not because there's another character in Marvel I have the same beef with who is uh, Hank Pym. That just because they have the term doctor or scientist before their name or after their name, suddenly they know every facet of science. So, you know, you've got Hank Pym who, what was his specialty like? I think it's the same as Doc, uh, as Doc Connors. It's like biochemist or, or yeah. yeah. But Which, you can go to them for radiation or building you a robot or, you know, anything. And they seem to have like a perfect mastery of it. And it's like, no, dude, you know, science is multifaceted that, you know, you, you wouldn't go to, you know, Isaac Asimov, you know, the, the master of robots to, you know, cure your sniffles. You know, it's it doesn't right. work that way. But that's what they do in comic books all the time. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, this guy, he's the lizard. I mean, that's that's not <laughs> a, a secret. So he his his studies have been with DNA recombination and limb regeneration. And the only thing I could think of is that Peter worked through his notes pretty heavily in that story back in issue six. So he would know more about the man's research than what was actually said in the book. I guess it's possible that, that he did pursue other areas of study like this while working towards limb regeneration? I don't know. That's the best I could come up with for an in-the-box explanation. But regardless, he's going to be our uh, plot device that's going to get us on our way here. So to get to Kirk Connors, uh, Peter starts calling around. He finds out that Dr. Connors has conveniently moved from Florida to New York. So he swings by the hospital lab, grabs Aunt May's blood sample, and swings into Dr. Connors' lab. Over there, Spider-Man realizes that the only way to save little Billy Connor's life from being eaten by his lizard rapist father is to kill this man right here, right now. So he pummels Dr. Connors to a bloody pulp. I know. I was surprised to read that. Not really, though. (laughs) (laughs) So Connors is very happy to see Spidey, and he promises to do whatever favor Spider-Man needs out of gratitude for his help in the lizard matter, even if that means not eating his son. But he's going to fail on that promise later. 
Um, so after some study, Connors concludes that they would be greatly helped by a new serum created on the West Coast called ISO 36. Spidey says, order it. I'll pay you later. And he leaves. Minutes later, he has boxed up all his valuable scientific equipment, including his microscope, in a glass bell jar even. And he sells it all at a pawn shop. So Peter goes back to Connor's lab with his wad of green. Wait, wait. I just have to point out that he sells it to Uatu at the at the pawn shop. <laughs> that is totally Uatu with a bow tie. Yeah. <laughs> Big head boy. The pawn shop watcher. <laughs> <laughs> it is my task in this universe to watch over all of the pawn shops and merchandise that comes and goes. And to tell you all of the different paths that it might take through life. Well, see, he was at a watcher meeting, and he asked the other watchers, what have you guys been watching? They said porn, and he thought they said pawn, so he went and opened this shop. <laughs> so he started Pawn Stars? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> if I don't it's get a no here. prize for that, there's something broken with the universe, I'm telling you. Peter and Dr. Connor start making science. Um, <laughs> start making science. <laughs> <laughs> He tries to help Dr. Connors get his experiment apparatus all set up with all these orange chemicals that he's mixing together. Um, meanwhile, at the hidden headquarters of Dr. Octopus, alias the Master Platter, one of the purple goons reports of a shipment of ISO 36 arriving from the West Coast. Dr. Octopus wants this for his research. So when the cross-country jet lands later that day, the courier is waylaid by the master planner's purple guys. <laughs> yeah, they, they beat the shit out of him. <laughs> they really do. They cave his skull in, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, all we get to see is a thock on the head, but um, but they do still off with the canister. I, I'm, I'm envisioning, you know, some blood and pulp going on here. Yeah. <laughs> his brains spill out onto the face. <laughs> Dr. Connors gets a call. What's that? The serum. Stolen at the airport. Who, you say the description fits the cat's gang? I, I, I mean, the master planner's gang? <laughs> and so Spidey lights out to reobtain the serum. I mean, okay. The, the purple guys never told anybody they worked for the master planner. They still haven't told anybody they worked for the master planner. How anybody knows that these guys work for the master planner, I don't know. Didn't Spider-Man say, uh, tell it to Foswell in the last issue or not? Is this another situation where I didn't read it close enough? <laughs> Actually, I don't, I, don't, I don't really know. Maybe. Maybe it, maybe it did. I'm going to go with no until somebody shows me otherwise. Okay, so Spidey lights out to reobtain the serum, but is taken down by monster-sized monsters, being controlled by a hypno-coin! <laughs> the monster-sized monsters ad has been like this little bitty ad on one of those like multiple ad pages, but now it gets a whole half page. So I guess they really forked over the dough for this one. But anyways, <laughs> Spider-Man figures the Master Planner's hideout is in the vicinity of the waterfront because that's where he fought his gang those two other times. But he doesn't know exactly where. He gets an idea how to find out, though, and swings into the Daily Bugle, frightening Betty into dropping all of her papers. He asks where Frederick Foswell is, and she tells him Foswell just left. As Spider-Man leaves, he thinks, When I see her that way, so fragile, so helpless, how I long to take her in my arms... But to me, Betty is looking anything but fragile and helpless. She actually looks pretty pissed right there. In That's that because uh, those papers are actually uh, towel etched. That's the ladies' room. Oh. She dropped all of her feminine products. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Spidey finds Foswell in the street a short distance from the Daily Bugle. And I don't know how he recognized him from above because Foswell's wearing this hat, right? So you can't really see his face from the air. But he does, you know, pick the right guy, swings down, grabs him, takes him to a roof. Spider sense. 
Yeah, of course. Foswell sends. It's Foswell sends. He assures Foswell that he's not holding a grudge from the big man days they had in the past, and Spider-Man asks for Foswell help in the underground, finding out info on the Master Planner. Spider-Man leaves Foswell on the roof without giving him a chance to agree or dissent. Or getting and, his hat. <laughs> and in the hours that follow, the amazing crime buster invades every underworld haunt he can find, busting oh, yes. up baddies and roughing up roughnecks, trying to get people to spill the beans on the Master Planner. But as the hours wear on, the answer is always the same. Honest, we don't know where he is. Only his gang knows his hideout. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the hospital, May Parker slips into a coma. And there's nothing the doctors can do. But laugh. <laughs> 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 oh, look at that, she's dying. Neener, 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 you have a fever. Oh, that, was, that was an Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Yeah. Untold Tales of Spider-Man, yes. Issue like, what are we up to, like 30 now that we've made up on the fly? Yeah, like, like, like past the actual serious life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Spider-Man continues to search in a scene that recreates the cover with the uh, tearing up staircase and car on its side and everything. And Dr. Connors worries about the success of their experiments. And finally, Spider-Man's Spider-Sense tells him there's a trap door in an alleyway. And he's even able to sense the release mechanism. And below he finds the Foot Clan. <laughs> <laughs> As they're recruiting new members to, to serve the shredder. <laughs> so he dives right in and starts beating up thugs, demanding to know where the serum is being kept. But of course, they're not talking. And there is some great action here, but it doesn't last long, because he sees some reinforcements coming in through a secret door. So he dives through that door himself. It, glad it's not the bathroom. The gang reports to Dr. Octopus that Spider-Man is on his way through the secret tunnel, and Auk is happy about this. Now, at the beginning of the issue, he was all pissed off that Spider-Man was around, but now he's happy. Not sure what changed his mind, but we'll go with it. He is planning now to set a trap with the ISO 36 serum as bait. And sure enough, Spidey creeps through the tunnel to a room where a spotlight is shining on the serum canister sitting on the floor. Spidey goes to get it, but is blasted by an electric shock, causing him to fall from the ceiling. But before the dazed, stricken youth can reach the ground, a hidden door slides open as four super-powerful living tentacles lash out. So, Spider-Man, we meet again. But this time, alas, it shall be our final encounter. Never again will you interfere with the plans of those who are your superior. That's, that's good. That's good. Dr. Octopus, then it's you who are the master planner. One of my strongest foes. And yet, I must defeat him for the sake of Aunt May. Still governed by a fit of fighting, raging fury, Spider-Man uses his uncanny adhesive power to grip the floor as he does a sudden flip over, pulling Auk by his tentacles in a throw across the room. Now, this doesn't awesome. bother Octopus much, but he does have to let, out, let go a couple of tentacles to control his landing. And he lashes out immediately, but Spider-Man's ready for him. And using his recently acquired Princess Python knot-tying skills, he tangles all along <laughs> the on a mess. <laughs> but that doesn't last long, because the next panel, Oct's throwing stuff. Octopus knocks down a pillar, and Spidey grabs one of the chunks and throws it at Oct. But he misses, and... You toppled the main support beam! The cast iron upper level units are collapsing! And collapse they do, right on to Spider-Man. So he's pinned from the waist down. But then the weary youth hears an ominous rumble above him. And as he turns his head he sees... The largest iron unit of all, beginning to slide down towards me. It must outweigh a locomotive. I'll be crushed! He slows out his web. I can't stop it, but maybe I can slow it down with my webbing. It's it's like trying to stop a battleship with a slingshot. I, I can't get out of the way in time. 
but by twisting and turning carefully, I might place myself under this small, hollowed-out area. A chunk it all lands on him, and he's in this little bitty nook, and he can't move. I did it. I saved myself from being crushed. But even my great strength can't lift this thing off me. I see the vial of serum just ahead of me, but it might as well be on another planet. And then this water starts dripping down, and he realizes not only can he not get out from underneath the huge, collapsed, you know, iron whatever it is that's fallen on him, the room is also filling up with water because he is, after all, underneath the river. And there is a leak in the ceiling. And while the costumed teenager fumes at his seemingly hopeless predicament, May Parker slowly sinks deeper and deeper into her coma, one faint word softly crossing her lips. Peter! While directly across town, another man silently waits and wonders. As many fathoms beneath the surface of the sea, the Foot Clan, I mean the Master Planners gang, are ready to take Spider-Man <laughs> on as soon as he escapes. But behind that bolted door, unsuspected by the masked criminals, Spider-Man fumes in helpless rage as the drops of water fall ever faster. Ever larger. Faster. Larger. Faster. Larger. Yes. Yes. Oh. Oh. Oh, oh God. Oh, God. <laughs> Wait a minute. What, what, what show is this again? That was awful. <laughs> Wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever befalls, this we say to you. You must not miss the next issue of Spider-Man. And now to that glorious moment when you hold next month's copy in your eager hands, we wish you one and all happy web-slinging. And I have to say, this is one of the best cliffhangers ever. Oh, yeah. Not necessarily just what's happening, but the way it's orchestrated, the way it's drawn, the way it's told. It's just so cinematic and so amazing. To coin a word. <laughs> what I like about it is that, you know, he's, he's already screwed when the thing falls on him and he can't move and he's far away from the vial and time's running out. Like, that's already a thing. But just like just the tip of the iceberg is that, oh, and, and now it's filling with water. Like, it was already like, it was already like a, a, almost a near hopeless situation. Now it's just impossible. Because he will die. <laughs> or will he? He pawns all of his scientific stuff that he has at home, including his microscope. And this is like the choose-your-own-adventure of microscopes. Because it has like three different fates. And I'm not sure exactly how to reconcile <laughs> them all. Well, he, oh, spoilers, I guess he's back. Because, does he, does he go he back that, and purchase his pawn stuff back? Yeah, when, when he yeah. Uh, demands for Jameson like, more money, he, he does not only to cover his expenses, but to get his, get his I quote, my uh, science stuff out of Hawk. Oh, okay, I haven't reread 34 yet. Okay, so that's good. Um, it's at the end of 33, isn't it? Is it the yeah. end of 33? Did I, I, think, I think so, yeah. Well, you know how I do with the reading. I was doing some looking on the inner tubes at exactly what the different si things were that happened to his microscope, but I found a humorous site about fake science, and the headline was, Scientifically Linked, Marie Curie Killed Uncle Ben. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, Marie Curie, she developed the theory of radioactivity in the late 1800s. And later, Peter Parker was transformed by a radioactive spider. And, of course, it was his arrogance as a superhero that resulted in the death of his beloved Uncle Ben. So Marie Curie, she killed Uncle Ben. <laughs> but uh, just for uh, future reference, the other fates that uh, happened to his uh, microscope are that he leaves it at Uncle Ben's grave in Amazing Spider-Man 181. And then Aunt May accidentally gives it away to the church bazaar in the Amazing Spider-Man 290. I remember that. And um, also in the Marvel Knights run, it's in his room. It's in his old room in Aunt May's house when they're moving. It's like, wow, I remember this. My old microscope that I apparently gave away several times. I guess it's conceivable that every time it went somewhere, 
it was later retrieved. I mean, you can't just leave a microscope sitting on a gravesite. It's going to get removed. So I don't know. Maybe he went back and got it or somebody else gave it to him. I don't know. One of my favorite parts of this whole thing is uh, on page five when uh, – Peter realizes he's responsible, or at least he feels responsible for what's happening to Aunt May because it's just been revealed to him about, you know, the radioactive element in his blood is what's killing Aunt May. And he goes home and it, it really is a great sequence of him being totally angsted out. You know, he's he's looking at this picture of Aunt May and Uncle Ben and, you know, talking like about you know, they, yeah, it does look like a lunchbox. <laughs> you know, that they were, you know, the two people that he's loved most in the world. They raised him and, you know, they're like his mother and father. And, you know, they had love for him and they were kind to him. And he's brought them nothing but tragedy. I love this middle panel in the page. Yeah. He says, but I can't, it can't happen again. It mustn't. It mustn't. Not to Aunt May. She's been too good, too kind. I can't pay her back like this and i'm thinking but you don't mind paying her back by smashing all the furniture in her house in this <laughs> rage that you're in so aunt may's gonna recover eventually or or maybe not but if she recovers and manages to come home she's gonna find everything she owns broken <laughs> and have a heart attack <laughs> i love it <laughs> beyond that I, I think it's just, I think it's a really great issue. I think it's uh, really nicely paced. I think it moves along uh, very well without some of the, the things that plagued the prior issue. You know, as much as I liked 31, there were parts of it that felt padded out. You know, just like they were they were trying to fill up the pages, you know, with all the back and forth between school and Aunt May and school and Aunt May and back and forth. This one's not like that at all. It it really flows and it moves like like a movie would move. You know, you, you come right in, you get the you know, you get the beginnings of the story, the setup um, and everything you need to keep the story progressing. And you even get just enough movement on the subplots to both remind you of them and to progress them just a little bit. And then it goes right into the action sequence. You know, Spider-Man realizes what he has to do and. And we see his obsession with with doing everything he can, you know, to set this situation right because he he feels, you know, responsible for what's happening to Aunt May. I love that. And to see him really unleash, you know, because here's a guy who's supposed to have this proportionate strength of a spider. And when you think of that, a man sized spider, that would be an awful lot of power, an awful lot of uh super strength and all that sort of thing, but we never really see him unleash that much in, in the comics and to see him really go berserk in that one, in, in this issue. And not just with, you know, punching out bad guys, but, you know, throwing cars around and ripping up, you know, masonry and stairways and these giant bits of metal. And so I love that. It's really cool to mm. see just how strong he is when he doesn't hold back. And I think it's a fantastic issue. I, I think the, the sole misstep, if you will, with this issue is is what we talked about earlier, that you know the, the revelation of the master planner's identity really, really should have been reserved page for, uh, yeah, the bottom of page 15, that last panel. If, if that panel right there of Doc Ock coming out of that door and grabbing spider-man if that had been 
the reveal to us along with Spider-Man, I think that would have been just awesome. I, I, I think that would have really packed punch. And as it is, I, I don't know that it does. I mean, does it feel impactful when, you know, he reveals himself to Spider-Man? Because we've already known who it is since the very beginning of the issue. I, I, I think it comes off kind of flat. Only, but, to, me, only to me in the, in the, the uh, sudden abruptness of his attack. That it's, it's, you know... Spider-Man's going along, do, 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 and suddenly, bam! Doctor Octopus has every single one of your limbs, uh, and you know it, it takes up more than half the page. And so there's the, there's some drama there. I just wonder if, okay, for this being the Master Planner trilogy, the Master Planner is actually not on the page that much. Uh, That's, I, was, I, was, I was just about to say that I I, I understand what uh, Scott is saying, and I agree with him. But I think the re- if there is a reason why he was revealed so abruptly in the issue like in the third panel or whatever, I think it was because in the grand scheme of things, Dr. Octopus is not in the story all that much. He's in like, like he's, he's in bits and parts throughout the, this issue, mainly in half, really. And then only the first, he's, he, he's, he's barely in, the, he's not even in the next issue, is he? No, he's not. So he, I, he's, I think, he's, on, yeah. he's on two separate pages before he, Spider-Man he, he, infiltrates the base. And then he's on like three pages, uh, you know, the, of the fight, four maybe. I don't know how many. Yeah, four pages yeah. fight. As 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 cool as the reveal would have been on page fifteen, I think the effect, the overall effect that that Ed has now would have been the same because he's barely in the in the story. Because we, we we would probably be saying, you know, it's a great reveal, but he's barely in it. And now it's like, you know, it's it's a it's a great identity for the master planner, but it was revealed badly. <laughs> it might just have to do with the whole overall story structure because this is the plot chapter, right? You know, the first chapter was, you know, like you said, a little bit padded, and it had a lot to do with other aspects of Peter's life besides the Master Planner story. You know, he he's dealing with the fact that his aunt is sick, but we don't even know why until the very end of that issue. And, um, you, know, it, you know, really until this issue, they explain why, and he starts going about finding a solution. The solution is discovered. It becomes a MacGuffin. He goes after it and is attacked at the end of the issue. And the next issue is the action-packed resolution to everything. Yeah, um, but- this is just the way I like my trilogies, you know, to play out where, you know, 31 is your Star Wars, this is your Empire Strikes Back, and then next issue, the Ewoks come and save him. So, I mean, it, it really, right. it works out really well with this. And I, I like the uh, the second panel on page 15 as well, that we get that, like, photo negative of Spider-Man that looks a lot like the symbiote Spider-Man that we would see yeah, I was you know, that too. way on down the road. Oh, wow, so that's, yeah, that's kind of neat. It's almost like Dick Coach the symbiote. Yeah, very cool. The only other thing about this is that since we do know it's Dr. Octopus going in, then we get a sense of what Spider-Man's walking into as he moves closer and closer into the trap. We have more of a sense of just what kind of brown pile he's about to step in. And so that that adds a little bit. But overall, I do agree with you that structuring things a little bit differently and having us find out that he's or maybe on page 14, you know, getting him in shadows with the tentacles and everything before the actual reveal, reveal on 15. Maybe that would have been enough. But then I think there, the whole thing should have been structured differently. So there were more pages with him involved in the fight with Spider-Man after that. This 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 three parter is so really good. It might be a boring episode of classics because there's really not that much fun we can. There's really not much we can make fun of. I, I think it's <laughs> g- genuinely good storytelling. 
<laughs> yeah, that is kind of our shtick is to like, you know, pull out everything that we can make fun of. And this is an awesome issue. Yeah, Michael and I frequently find ourselves with the same problem when when we're, you know, covering comics on any one of our different shows is that, you know, when it's a mediocre to bad issue, you can find tons to talk about because if nothing else, you can just rip into it. But when it's an awesome issue, a lot of times, yeah, you'll find yourself going, well, uh, so how's the weather in your neck of the woods? You know, because <laughs> you know, there's only so many different ways you can say this was awesome. And it was. It was truly awesome. And I don't want to nitpick it or, or, you know, whittle it down by pointing out so. goofiness. With Yeah, exactly. I do see more Gil Kane whenever Peter's angry and calling on the phone trying to get to Kirk Connors. And I don't know if Gil Kane, like, studied after Ditko, and that's why he has the style that he has. But Ditko is definitely changing up a lot of the angles and camera shots that he's using to get people's faces. And it's the kind of thing that we'll see a lot more, uh, you know, once we pass issue, like, whatever it is, 90 or whatever, whenever Kane takes over. Um, I it's just Kane's style, because he, he does it all the bloody time. Like, upward does. angles of people's faces. So you yeah. see all the way up to their nose and stuff. You know what also is really good about this? It probably helps that the Master Planner is such a non-entity because it's not about the Master Planner. It's called the Master Planner arc just kind of by happenstance, but it's about – this is the this is the kind of aspect that, that of Spider-Man that, that we've come to know in the years where he's – where he is determined and desperate and you see what he's really made of. Because a lot of the times in, in, the, in the past issues, he's kind of been reactionary to the new villains. But this time when uh, his, his aunt's life is on the line – he pretty much takes the world by the balls and just takes control, like like Scott was saying. You know, he he tears apart a metal staircase, like 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 it was nothing, and that kind of stuff. And, and, and this early is this early of the character's history. It's really really good. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, with the strength that he displays throughout this issue, when we get to the end, the only thing that's working against him is leverage. I mean, if he could just get the leverage, he could you know tear that thing that's on him apart. He just is at a bad angle to get out of it. Yeah, he's way down. Right. Everything clicks. Everything flows. The emotion is there. I mean, we make fun of silly old Aunt May because she's been around for 640 issues now. But, you know, this was this was the worst it had gotten so far for her. And this early in the series. I'm not entirely sure if if readers at this time actually suspected that she might die at this point. We take it for granted that she didn't, but I have to wonder now if... If readers of the day, and I'm not talking like, you know, six-year-olds who are, you know, automatically swallowed by every story, but, you know, the more high school, college-age readers. Because, like, like high school and college students were reading Spider-Man. If if, if the critical thinkers of stories were also thinking, you know, maybe they're actually going to kill her off now. Because I know fans were asking for it. This is one of those things where, like, like the term is, it's not really a mystery, as in, you know, you don't know what they're trying to make you guess. Like... I think people know that Aunt May is going to pull through, but it's sort of—it's more of like what's called a narrative mystery, and you're seeing—it's—it's it's more of seeing like what's going to happen next. You know, we know Peter is trying to say her proof, but what's going to what's going to happen next? You know, how is he going to go up against Master Planner? How can he save her? How is like it's like it's like what what else can happen? And you want to see that more than just you know, it's more of an open-ended question that you want to see resolved rather than the closed-ended question of does Aunt May live or not. And I think that's what really draws in uh, people towards the story. Do we want to look at the uh, the Betty Ned drama at the at the beginning there? She had it coming. <laughs> <laughs> she just doesn't get it. 
even a little bit. <laughs> and I don't think she ever arc, does. Uh, I don't think she ever no. understands just how messed up she makes her life be. This 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 must be so frustrating for the guy. I mean, even even Ned's like, you know, what, ooh, Parker, why don't we talk over this calmly? I mean, you know, honestly, if I were Peter, I probably wouldn't want to like just just discuss this and like kind of get all the deals out, like, because it, it's not that hard to go back on, you know, it's not that hard to think. What have I possibly done besides everything that I, I could have possibly done to drive you away from me? What? And yeah. this is this is pretty much it. Like like I think this is their last interaction before the Ramita issue where they meet again. I think. Don't quote me on that. Okay, now I have to look. On the chronology project. I mean, but what is up with Ned? I mean, is he really happy being the fallback guy? I mean, if, if Peter had come right out here and said, you know what? No, I, I got no interest. I'm done with you. Leave me alone. You know, w- was Ned going to be truly content if Betty was like, all right, well, I, I guess that, you know, you know, I'll be with you now. <laughs> you know, I mean... Wow, you, you know, have, you have think, some, yeah. yeah, have some respect for yourself, dude. You know, maybe this <laughs> is the first girl that's ever talked to him, and so he's like doing anything he can to to keep things going there. Even he's also wearing a green a green suit, which could mean he's the Green Goblin. <gasps> <gasps> oh no! <laughs> I think he looks a lot like Pete Ross myself. He's really blonde hair in uh, this issue, in this copy that I have. Well, we we talked about how his hair has always changed, like you know, blonde to ginger to red to orange to like Dijon honey mustard. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so there is a really big Peter Parker Betty Brant scene in the next issue, oh, and then they don't talk again until Ramita. So just just to pull that circle closed. Well, crap! I don't have anything else to say about this. It was a really really awesome issue. <laughs> I, 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 have a, I have a note on the ad. Oh, which ad? Um, the freaky one with, like, the high school thing? Now you can finish high school. Sorry, really. Like, that, that's kind of creepy in 1965. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Now you can finish high school at home. Win a diploma in your spare time. Qualify for a better job. I don't know. It's just that like, the way the way it's done, it's, it's like, it's, it's it's sort of like an ad now, you know, all kind of, like, manipulative and disturbing. <laughs> they're, they're, they're getting that in pretty early. For the uh, the spider's web this month... We had David W. Banks asking that Spidey join the Avengers. And just a few months earlier, they had their first big membership change. Captain America was currently leading Hawkeye, Quicksilver, and the Scarlet Witch. There's a, it's an era that is commonly now called Cap's kooky quartet. Uh, there was a lot of concern that the team just didn't have much muscle anymore. So David is suggesting that Spider-Man could help with that. The uh, unfortunately named Michael Fallis... <laughs> Complains that the Molten Man fight was over too quickly in issue 28. Now, you don't know that. He might have been very popular with the ladies with a name like that. It could be. Could be. Most likely not. (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just guessing no, but, you know. I I guess he also didn't didn't get the fact that, you know, issue 28 was mainly about the graduation. The Molten Man was kind of thrown in as as, a... it's a superhero comic, so we have to have a bad guy with a fight. So his complaint doesn't really weigh too much with me. Les Soriali pinned them on the Liz Hilton mistake, whatever they call Liz Allen, Liz Hilton. And there was lots of love for the second annual from several letter writers with the Doctor Strange story, which I don't understand at all. because we thought Yeah, that not was, from us. That was kind of crazy. Leo Renaud, Renaud, Renaud something, made his own latex mask and gloves of the lizard for the Mardi Gras parade and won first prize. And there's a black and white photo printed in the letters column of him there. 
and it's kind of blurry, but from what I can tell, it looks really good. Like, he gets props for making a lizard costume there. Cosplaying in in its earliest. Yes. And it's the Ditko rendition of the lizard, so it's not very scary lizard looking, but... It's not not Tom McFarlane, though. No. Don't worry, don't worry, freak people out back in 1964. Sorry. Rise above it all! Advantageous. Jeff Williams suggests bringing back John Jameson and helping him likes having him like Spider-Man so that he could be at odds with his dad. He will get his wish. Yeah. And finally, Betty Ann Lopate writes extensively a really long-ass letter comparing Spider-Man to the Dadaist pop art movement. And uh, honestly, I read half the letter and couldn't really follow what she was trying to say. So... (laughs) But then the next issue box, check this out. No need for a big ballyhoo about our next ish. It's scripted by Stan and drawn by Steve, and it reintroduces Craven the Hunter. Oh my god. <sighs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> well, maybe. No, well, that's what it says. Yeah. Maybe this whole letter scene was uh, sent out too early, and maybe they meant this for the next issue. Yeah, or- that's what I'm guessing that somebody didn't communicate with somebody else. The Marvel Bullpen Bulletins. More nutty news and notes from one Marvel madman to another. There were a few things here that, that have to do with the world of Spidey-Man. The, in the We Goofed Again department, remember how we tried to change our name to Marvel Pop Art Productions? Well, <laughs> although some of you went along with us, we never realized how many thousands were intensely loyal to the name Marvel Comics. Your mail, phone calls, and telegrams bowled us over. So once again... We fell on our red faces, and from now on, we're the Marvel Comics group once more. So be it. Now and forever! But the Marvel pop art productions thing was just silly. So I'm glad that they went That was was the dark days, and you know, thank God we're out of those long, horrible era. Centuries and centuries of pop art. (laughs) (laughs) Sure did fall like it. The season's biggest surprise. Here's the best-kept secret of the year. We have a brand-new 25-cent giant-sized quarterly sensation on sale this month. It's called Marvel Collector's Item Classics, and they'll be like having a fabulous annual four times a year. Our first dish on sale now features the full-length thrillers you have most requested from the earliest days of the Fantastic Four, Spidey, Ant-Man, and Tales of Asgard. This is your chance to build up a priceless library of Marvel Masterworks. Enough said. So, um... They actually, the book gets a ad page to Marvel Collector's Item Classics. Uh, they, it's, it's labeled as a new king size reprint series. It does reprint Amazing Spider-Man three in its first issue for those who had missed it two and a half years earlier, along with the Fantastic Four two and a Tales to Astonish Ant-Man story and one of the Journey into Mysteries Tales of Asgard. Um, this would be a bi-monthly book, and mm-hmm. it lasted all the way into 1980 going monthly for its last year. It's basically the Fantastic Four equivalent of Marvel Tales. Yeah, it it switched titles after number 22. It became uh, Marvel's... Gre- uh, was it Marvel's Greatest yeah, Comics? Yeah, Marvel's I Greatest think? Comics. Yeah, I've got almost a complete collection of the uh, Marvel's uh, Collector's Items classics, but then when it switched over to the other title, I find those hard to find. I- I've got a pretty decent-sized collection of them, but... Uh, they don't turn up near as frequently as uh, as Marvel Tales used to when I was a kid. It seemed like Marvel Tales were everywhere, you know, the Spider-Man reprint ones, but the right. FF reprint ones for some reason they were they were hard to come across. But yeah, before it switched to 
Marvel's greatest comics. That collector's items classics was a great one because man, you got a lot of comics for your money in those because they they threw you know several stories into every issue. You know all the different you know basically all their best characters got a story in every issue. So I, I like those things and surprisingly you can find those on the cheap. Uh, like like a dollar or two or yeah, I would say because uh, I've got. Like I say, almost a complete collection of them, and I am notoriously cheap when it comes to my back issues. I know I haven't paid more than $2 for any of them, so yeah, they're okay, out there. Wow. Be and uh, I find them, or I used to anyway, I used to find them on lots on eBay all the time. You know, you might pay 10 20 bucks for the lot, but when you break it down to a per-issue price, you know, you're usually getting them for, you know, 50 cents or a buck, so... There's a lot yeah. up right now for, eight, uh, it's at eight twenty-seven right now, and it's 12 issues from the, from the run. Yeah, there you uh, go. Well, no, some of the three of those are Marvel Tales, but from the same, you know, early, early, early issues of the run. Yeah, well worth it, I think, for the for the money, because like I say, you know, those Marvel collectors items classics, you know, you got, you know, you usually got, uh, I believe, at least three full comics in every issue. I'm looking just just on a random one here. I'm looking at the cover to number three, and it's got FF number four. Tales of Suspense number 40 with Iron Man, Hulk number 3, and then it even says it has a Tales of the Watcher and a Doctor Strange story in it. So that's a heck of a lot of comics for, you know, back then it was 25 cents. And today, if you could get it for, say, two bucks at most, man, you know, you, you can't you can't go wrong with something like that. And, you know, it's full color. I'm pretty sure up to a point they were full reprints. Now, at some point, all the Marvel reprint titles like Marvel Tales and uh, super action and triple action, all those, they started to edit mm-hmm. stuff out. They would take out sometimes entire pages. But, but Mar- Marvel, the- Marvel's standard story length went down to 18 or 17 pages, and they had yeah. all the extra ads because yeah. I guess they weren't making money. So their reprint books, they also had to whittle down to fit the space. Right. Which sucks. Yeah, it does. There's a... I wish I could find it. I, I used to have it bookmarked, but I have a new computer now, but there was a great little website somewhere that was super in-depth about Marvel reprints. It gave a complete like page-by-page, panel-by-panel breakdown of the differences between, say, you know, some edited issue of uh, like Marvel Tales, for example, and then the original issue that it came from, and it would tell you exactly what you were missing in them. And uh, that was actually pretty helpful. But I found a lot of times, you know, as I built my Avengers collection, for example, I would look at, you know, an, an issue of Avengers and then the reprinted story in, uh, uh, I think it was Marvel Triple Action, if I remember right. And while, yeah, you were losing, you know, sometimes like an entire page or two, usually it was junk that you really wouldn't miss anyway. You know, a lot right. of like, you know, the wasp fussing because the guys wouldn't let her go on the mission or something, you know, something that you wouldn't. You know, it definitely wasn't ever anything important like, you know, a a villain reveal or, you know, somebody getting critically injured or something. It was always, you know, some... More like like that. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing from the bullpen bulletins that's worth noting is that um, it's not necessarily pertaining to Spidey. I just thought it was an interesting note. It says the wrap-up. Fellow Marvelites are always asking us which is our best-selling title, so we might as well level with you right now. We can't decide. Each and every one of our superhero mags, including Sergeant Fury, hits the sales jackpot. We don't know if there's ever been a success story like this in the history of publishing before, and we're not sure exactly what it is that we're doing right, but this you can bet on, we're not going to stop. How can we? They won't let us take a day off. 
Gotta go now. We just heard that someone forgot to face front. See you next dish. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, okay, I know that they're like, you know, trying to be awesome, but they have sales figures. Oh, they yeah. know what their books are selling. Oh, absolutely. Well, like, it took a, it took a while back then, right? It might That's have done, but I I mean, they when when orders come in from the print shop, I mean, they know how many copies they're selling to the vendors. Right. I don't know, but obviously they don't want to make any one of their books seem bad because it's not the best. That yeah, that was that's what it comes down to is they didn't want to show favoritism in the titles or or take a chance of, you know, somebody not picking up, you know, Sergeant Fury or something because it wasn't holding its own with, you know, the top tier books. But yeah, I, I, I would imagine that it was pretty impossible that they didn't know what their top selling title was. I mean, come on. It almost makes me wonder if Sergeant Fury was their bottom selling title. So they mentioned it to like, you know, get people to go buy it because everyone yeah, else is buying it. Precisely. Yeah, I think that's exactly why that that one title is called out is because it probably was the bottom book. And um, last month when the Goblin asked, I wonder what's in this tube. Now we know it was a life size, full color Spidey pinup. Life size. That could be fun to have like that filling up your wall. That would be kind of cool. Pretty awesome. And you can still get all the Marvel t-shirts, Marvel stationery and other Marvel marching society stuff. The only other thing I have is that the the in-house ad for this issue, besides being Marvel Collector's Item Classics, also brings up Fantastic 446, continuing the first saga of the Inhumans, bringing Black Bolt to the focus of the story. So that's pretty cool. This is, again, really, really top at Fantastic Four stuff. We're going to be getting up to the Galactus soon, so good stuff here. And that would be it for this episode of Amazing Spider-Man Classics, except that I was able to take my Bertoni to the Bertoni Repair Shop and was able to get some of his thoughts on issues 31 and 32 the next time we spoke. So here is Josh Bertoni and what he thought of these uh, two issues that we discussed today. Peter's mental place here, it's, it's, everything's happening to him at once. He's going through a breakup, his first serious breakup, which they don't really, you know, his thoughts aren't really on that this issue. His aunt's dying and he's starting college. That's a lot to weigh on a person anyway, no matter all that stuff. To say he has a lot on his mind right now is to say that water's wet. I mean, it's just like... So it's, you know, it, it, it fits in with the story. Um, I like how he does have that thought about dropping out of college, but realizing that it will break on May's heart. Well, uh, we did see the result of that um, in the Roger Stern uh, and later Tom DeFalco run. Because mm-hmm. he dropped out of graduate school and Aunt May wouldn't talk to him for almost a year. That was before he got married or after? Before, before he got married. Alien costume saga. He dropped out in the Stern run, but he, like... Didn't tell Aunt May for about ten issues or so. Wait, he dropped then, out while he had the alien costume, like in those eight issues, or he later? told her when he had the alien costume. Is that that trade? He, he he dropped out way before Battle World, and like any every time he saw her after that, he put off doing it. In fact, there's that one that me and Don like, where he goes to have dinner with Anna Watson and Aunt May, and they're still <laughs> doing the, the Mary Jane thing. He's like, oh. I'm so glad that you guys are just having dinner with me. Ever since Mary Jane came to town, everyone's been trying to set me up with her. Except for you two. Why are you two looking at me like that? She's right behind me, isn't she? (laughs) I haven't seen that issue. Yeah, so he doesn't tell her then, but he tells her when he gets back from Battleworld, and she won't talk to him for like ten issues. So it's uh, interesting. Frederick Foswell, he's like, I can't go to the cops about this, you know, because they won't believe me. So I'll go to Spider-Man because I can't go to the cops. I'll be a fool. In fact, I'm going to Spider-Man because I can't go to the cops. And what does he do at the end? He goes to the cops anyway. W- what changed to make him be able to go to the cops? Uh, Stanley is writing process, I guess. 
does he go to the cops or do the cops just show up? He the cops show up with him and he's like, "See, I told you," or like, or "Thanks, Patch," something like that. But I I I, I do know that yes, Foswell like did go. To, like, what changed? But like, yeah. speaking of Daily Bugle reporters, Uh-oh. okay, yes. and we're, I don't know how this is. I'm sure that you guys mentioned this. Ned is a chump. <laughs> yes, he is. Like he's like Betty. Have you have you thought about it yet? She's like, I really need to talk to Peter first. Okay. When she says that she needs to talk to her other boyfriend first, like you know, to like kind of you know, what's it called in business when you do that? Uh, Being a chump? No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you when you like take one offer, when when you leverage offers, basically. Yes. That's yeah. What it is. Yeah, it's like it's like she's leveraging offers. Like that should tell Ned right there. And he's like, Betty, you're being very mysterious. What is this all about? She doesn't want to marry you. <laughs> She'd much, 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 much rather marry Peter, but she doesn't know she can. That introduction with Gwen Stacy, that was like my first look at the character when I was looking at the essentials, and I was like, Wow, that's uh that does not look like Ramita Gwen Stacy, but that whole thing where she's like, no one gives Gwen Stacy the brush off. There's almost a panel for panel remake with that, or as Jr. would say, homage with April May in issue 194. Oh, I wrote that, but I don't remember. I can't, I can't place that in my mind's eye. But I'm who am I to who am I to question the great pretender? Well, uh, may, may, well, maybe it's more of a homage that I'm remembering. April May's like Peter, wait, and then he's like, can't talk now, gotta go. Because, you know, he's preoccupied with Hame and everything else. And she's like, oh, he's going to regret this. Let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) So it's cool that the college gang is, like, introduced in issue 31 here. But we won't see them for another three issues. It's kind of odd to introduce, you know, I say all these characters. Really, it's only two. I mean, it's three, but Professor Warren is kind of a bit character. I don't think that, you know, he was intended to be as big of a character as he later He wasn't really a... That much of a supporting character until I'd say, like the Jerry Conway run. Stanley probably had a professor in his life named Professor Warren, because that was the name of the high school teacher too. So I think that that was just like a stock name in Lee's mind, Professor Warren. He probably forgot that there was a Mister Warren in high school. <laughs> you think he just perished the thought? Yeah, I mean, and then it was later retcon that uh, it, uh, by Kurt Busiek that uh, that they were brothers in the Great Untold Tales. But, uh, yeah, Harry and Gwen's introduction, very important, and uh, I can go on about, like, for a while about Gwen in this issue and her mindset. I did that in the Gwen articles that you can now find over on Crawl Space that I need to update, so I'm not going to repeat the stuff that I said verbatim there, but, I mean, it's clear what's going through her head. And uh, uh, Scott brought up, he thought that when he was first, or when he was reading this, uh, that Gwen Stacy appeared older just as the way like the kids talking or whatever. Like, what, what do you what do you think? Because me and John gave our thoughts on that. What, what, what do you think about that concept? Him and Harry possibly being older. Because than Harry says the ex beauty queen of Standard High, it, it it leads me to believe that they're like fresh out of high school. Mm-hmm. Also, because like one's talking about following Flash's football career, you know, and Jr. even jokes about like what girl in high school follows the football career of another high schooler. Like, what college girl would do that? That makes it even more outlandish. You know, I th- I think that they were the same. I mean, and, and of course, it was later like established that that you know they were the same age because we see in we see in Untold Tales, yes, here it is again <laughs> that 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 they all went to freshman orientation. You know, quoting well, not freshman orientation, but that that they all like basically looked at the college on like tour day together. Except you know, Peter didn't run into Harry and Gwen, but you get the impression that Harry and Gwen have like a history here, which we later find more about in like supported material. Mm-hmm. 
I thought that they were dating throughout high school when I was younger, that and that and that like it just continued through college because of the way that things went. But apparently, it was a lot more one-sided. No, yeah, I I I, I find that mindset as well. I like He's, how Gwen um she has like a really young, immature, girlish kind of haircut here. Yeah, I I I like this Gwen visually a lot more than I like Ramita Gwen. Heck, I like this Gwen period a lot more than I like. Ramita well, Gwen. visually, that's that's rather. <laughs> What do you get that that panel where she has like like the Professor X slash Spock eyebrows? With in issue thirty one, she does look very very good. <laughs> well, I love that panel of her where she's like, "No one gives Gwen Stacy the brush off." Well, when, when Ramita takes her, her her angles become curves, and she becomes a much you know easier on the eyes. But mm-hmm. the way Lee wrote her during this time, and, and the the way that Ditko drew her, like personality wise, is much more interesting than what Ramita would do with the character. Well, right. Since she's died, she's become like George Jetson or Fred Flintstone. Like everyone, like that draws her. She has the same trench coat, and you know, and, <laughs> and I have to say like, that I would, I would never have sex with Fred Flintstone or George Jetson. So she's nothing Norman like Osborne them. would. I mean, like everyone draws her. Like you know, she wears that same outfit, and she wears that that darn headband. Headband. It's, it's like so groundbreaking. Like like now it's groundbreaking. Like if somebody draws Gwen and she doesn't have the headband on. And it's amazing that like she went through all of Ditko's run without wearing that darn thing once. She well, didn't even when she was interested like when Bermuda redrew her, he didn't draw her with a headband. He just drew her with like a different haircut. She wore the headband in like the second or the third issue of Ramita's run. But like, but then she didn't wear. But then like, she went through issues where she didn't wear it, and like, it was a while before she settled into her standard look. But even like towards the end of the Ramita run, there was issues where like she would wear something else instead. Like she had that. Uh, you know, I, I just mean, the, flipped to. Um, I just flipped point. to issue uh, forty-four just to grab an early Ramita at random, and it, at that point, he's still emulating Ditko's look quite a bit. With I mean, there is the headband, but everything else about her looks very much like Ditko's face. He he changed her over time. He accentuates on the cheekbones because like that's, you look at John Mina drawing Mary Jane and Gwen Stacy, they're very different because Gwen Stacy has cheekbones and Mary Jane has like the divot on her chin and her face is a little fuller. It's kind of like Clark Kent, you know, where people are like, you know, his glasses and his hair change the whole face of his shape. Like once they change Gwen's haircut and they put the headband there, it changes her whole face. She gets her bangs trimmed. Instead of wearing, instead of all having all her hair long, she 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 trims her bangs so that she has this little fringe across her forehead. But anyways, we're I th- we're probably spending way too much time on on, on Gwen's feminine attire. <laughs> what I, yeah, what I was saying. I mean, Gwen's first appearance. We'll be spending a lot. I, it's foreseeable that we'd be spending a lot of time on Gwen, but we have a lot of time to cover Gwen in the next you know ninety issues or so. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not like Harry Osborne changes his haircut. <laughs> yeah, we I haven't even spoken about Harry. <laughs> oh I'll talk about Harry more. I'll talk about Harry more in issue thirty-four though. Okay. Okay, so obviously Betty. <laughs> when she's running after Peter, can you tell me, is it something that I've said or done? Exactly. Yeah. Is this and I went through like serious? I went through a <laughs> yes, this is what I wanted. <laughs> Serious, seriously, seriously. Evidently, it is serious. She obviously has no memory of everything she's done ever since the Spider-Man fan club, or even before that, maybe. Even before that, I, I, I didn't. I didn't propose to Ned, did I? Is it like? For some reason, Peter's been acting strangely ever since I, t- I told him that my other boyfriend wants to marry me. Could this have upset him? Poor Betty, so misunderstood. 
No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Peter needs money for this, uh, you know, for, for so he can buy some science to save Aunt May. Because science is expensive. So he sells his, like, microscope and everything else, which uh, he later says that he's going to get out of Hawk. You know, that epic microscope that, like, moves from place to place. There's actually a lot of discrepancies with that microscope. So, because he needs money for science. Are you regretting in issue 30 not taking that reward money that Jonah offered to you on a silver platter? Are you regretting <laughs> that? You're regretting that at all now? It's like, well, you know, that, those thousands of dollars, it's like, you know, th- th- that I was going to give to someone for capturing a cat. Do you want it, Peter? Nah, no thanks, Mr. Jameson. Yeah, happy now? <laughs> Don't. And he just left Foswell on the roof. He's like, Foswell, I need to talk to you about this. And then, like, when he's done, he leaves him on the roof and just swings away. Bye-bye. Well, he's a man on the rampage, you know, so. Okay, it's funny because, like, the whole – in issue 31, there's that whole April-May thing that reminded me of Gwen Stacy. Here, Peter, you know, is in the oh, middle yeah. of a tr- – is in the middle of shenanigans with Betty and Ned. And he's like, the only way to get her and Ned leads to be happy and leave me alone is if I'm mean to Betty. I have to get her to hate me. And then once and for all – he does this same plan in issue 195. <laughs> He's like, if I get Betty to hate me, then, then then she'll leave me alone and she'll go with Ned. And then, you know, they because I can never be the kind of person that she wants, which. So he like, you know, yells at her belly, close your legs. And, you know, says, yeah, me. well, Jeez. it's weird because in this issue, Betty's like, you didn't fool me for one minute, Peter Parker. But in 195, she's like, how could I have been so fooled? <laughs> <laughs> Which is well, like, well, I mean, in that issue anyway, Ned's like, Peter, tell my wife you don't love her. I don't love you, Betty. Ah, Peter, why'd you tell my wife that you don't love her? <laughs> yeah. Like, th- that's seriously the stance that Ned takes. But yeah, it's... It, that, it, well, that's a jerk, that whole storyline. There, there's kind of some symmetry here, like here in Marv Wolfman's run, because what was going on then, too? Aunt May was dying. In <laughs> fact, she. In fact, that was her first death. But like you know, it, it you know it was really mysterious shenanigans. And Peter's friends were mad at him because of a misunderstanding because he was too focused on Aunt May. Harry and Flash, yeah. And he was transitioning from one you know level of schooling to another, college to graduate school. Ooh, this is like. And he also parallel. encountered one of his uh, most famous uh, female romantic interests. Here's Gwen Stacy. Here's and there's the black cat. So um, many metaphors, so many parallels. I feel like I'm reading Nathaniel Hawthorne or something. So many ripoffs. <laughs> I, I, and, and, and one of his love interests, Liz Allen, you know, bowed out of the series. Mary Jane bowed out of the series. And, I mean, there's the Betty parallel, but also him breaking up with Betty, you know, then, his his long Silver Age relationship. His relationship with Mary Jane was also ending. My my God. The entire history of Spider-Man is, like, falling apart before my eyes. I know, but but like, but this whole Ned thing, like Peter has the same plan twice. He's like, you know, I have to get Betty and Ned together, even though it hurts me. So I must be mean to Betty, which this is like a Stan Lee thing. Like in a lot of Silver Age books, the Silver Age boyfriend will be like, I have to make her hate me to make it easy on her. Daredevil did this with Karen Page. <laughs> like there's an issue of Daredevil where Karen like is like, I need to quit because I'm in love with you, Matt Murdock. And he's like, we can never be together because I'm Daredevil. So I must make her hate me. I have to. Do, if I make her hate me, it'll be easy on her. Bah, you stupid women! You're all the same. Stan Lee, like, did this ever happen to Stan Lee in real life, where he's like thinking, "I must make this woman hate me for her own good"? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No more pop art productions. You know that was pretentious. That's gone now. Yay. Yeah, the bullpen bulletins and the letters pages. 
It says next issue Craven. That's a bold faced lie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's on the last panel. We'll talk about that when we talk about thirty three in the next episode. But, oh, okay, yeah. so 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 it's not a bold faced lie. It's 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 a red faced lie, maybe. <laughs> no, no, it's it's a, it's a total blooper. And, and yeah, I can imagine somebody reading this and wondering how are they going to squeeze Craven into this story. Oh my goodness. This is Spider-Man's first encounter with Doc Connors since issue six. I know we said that we were done with this, but we're not, apparently. (laughs) They actually did have some chronological adventures together in Untold Tales between this and issue six, including Doc Connors turning to the lizard again. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Doc Connors was helping him with this little kid named Bat Thing or Batwing. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Oh, I suck because I, I, I've had those issues since I was a kid. It never even, the, the thought never even occurred to me. I mean, and they basically did everything that they could so that everything went back to status quo because I think at the end, Peter, like, gives Jameson pictures of the lizard again, and he says these pictures are obviously fake. So that way the world still doesn't know of the lizard and the status quo is exactly as it is with Doc Connors before his next lizard appearance. When, hmm. when does the lizard, like, out of the public? Everybody thought the lizard was fake. And, uh... Well, they knew he was real in, uh... He attacks in the city in 46, doesn't he? Yeah, so, like, that's when everyone realizes that he's real. Holy cow. That's when he uh, realized. Like... <laughs> Ooh! Sorry. My, my, my pun machine was, was running on rampant there. Not so much a pun as, a uh, archaic use of the word but in any case that brings us to the close of this episode of amazing spider-man classics not as long as we've been going lately still kind of long hope that's not a bad thing for you but we will be back in seven to ten days with the conclusion of the master planner story and the following issue featuring craven the hunter in the meantime Please write us with your thoughts. We didn't have emails this time, but we will have them again soon. The email address is AmazingSpidermanClassics at gmail.com. If you're new to the show, you can find us at several places. You can subscribe through iTunes. You can also leave us reviews there, for which we are always grateful. There is the homepage for the show, AmazingSpiderMan.Libsyn.com, where you can also leave comments and thoughts on the show. There is also on that page a link to our Facebook site, which I keep updated regularly with when episodes come out or if there are any delays and that sort of thing. And finally, before you go, I want to remind you that I also have a new podcast that I've started up entitled simply Golden Age Superman, which is a journey through the early adventures of the Man of Steel, beginning with Action Comics number one and going forward looking at his World War II incarnation and what came after. You can find that on iTunes under Golden Age Superman or GoldenAgeSuperman.Libsyn.com. I appreciate you checking that out, and we'll be back here at Amazing Spider-Man Classics hopefully on the 20th of January, so look for us then. My name is John Wilson. Thank you, as always, for listening. Good night. Just in time, Spider-Man.
Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, welcome fame, he's ignored, action is his reward to him. Life is a great big hang-up, wherever there's a hang-up, you'll find the Spider-Man. Okay, so diving <laughs> right into the books, uh, first up is of my sister calling me. <laughs> I'm gonna say you got all robot for a second. Oh, it's your, oh, it's your phone. Yeah, it's my phone interfering with everything. Now, before we get going, um, I'm sorry to make more editing work for you, John. I just want to apologize ahead of time. Um, <laughs> I don't. There's no delicate way to put this. If I burp because I just hate <laughs> and I'm I'm living on uh, Mountain Dew to keep me awake at the moment because this stupid thing with the DMV kept me tied up all day and I never got my afternoon nap that I typically take before recording. So. So, like I say, if if in the middle of this uh, synopsis I suddenly just belt one out, I apologize ahead of time. It's the fact that you know he doesn't give her a tumble, as we find out later. That um, did he just bathroom me? He did. He just bathroomed me. <laughs> I'm gonna make this profound continuity point. He goes to the bathroom. Either that or something very heavy just fell on him. One of the two. <laughs> All I heard was just like Kirk Blunk. Yeah, he typed into the um, uh, chat window. Be right back, bathroom. <laughs> well, damn him. I'm just going to make this note without him. Okay. So, yeah. Are you okay there, Don? You, you, everything come out okay? As far as I know. Okay. Thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> Most of my little pithy comments I put into the uh, um, – what's the thing I just did? The recap? Yeah, that thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I did want to say one thing. Ned is a fucking chump. Dude, that's like twice now that you've like, – I'm going to have to beep you. <laughs> Ned is a fudgedical chump. 